You're listening to Threshold Radio with Sam Ronto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp. Forbidden archaeology. Portion of what is viewed as national security. Look at these lights going across the road. You can argue about Roswell all you want to, but something happened today. We're just collecting the data is we know is a debate out there. Government? Is it government? Is it alien? Uh, an object was actually caught on a different. We're dealing with something genuine. This isn't make believe. Thresholds into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we got Michael Clean, Ted Rowe, also Susanna Taylor, and much more. We're going to start off right away with Ted Rowe right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us now, all the way from the other side of the states, Ted Rowe in Hawaii. How are you doing, Ted? Aloha, Sam. Doing just great. Hello to your listeners. What's the weather like? Oh, we've got a great day out here today. It's just uh, uh, South Kona Coast is basking in bright sunshine, and, and uh, the coral and the fish are just beautiful, and uh, we've got dolphins in the bay, and life's just pretty good over here. Uh, wish we were all here. I wish I was there, too. Now, I was going to ask you about it, maybe a little bit outside of the, uh, the, the normal top, uh, topic of research, but the Kolaris mm-hmm. case, are you pretty well versed in the Kolaris case at all? Uh, uh, you're going to have to give me some background on that. I, that. The name doesn't sound familiar to me, Sam. Down in uh, Brazil, the island that uh, uh, the UFOs were there sucking the blood out of people, vampires, bloodsucker case. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. worked on that a lot. Chupacabra. Chupa-chupa, yeah. something yeah. like that they called it. Chupa-chupas, yeah. they called it. Chupa-chupa. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm familiar with this just in general, but you probably know more detail about it than I do, Sam. Okay. Um, um, as far as your research, and uh, I was just curious, because the reason why I mentioned that is the correlation, of course, being involved now with, uh, although that was Brazil, uh, with, with uh, Chile, uh, and yes. how has that uh, progressed uh, in the last few days? Have you got any correspondence? Well, sure, sure. We've, we've been communicating. Um, uh, but it, it's important to note, Sam, that, that even the Brazilians take this seriously. Uh, and and they've, they may not have an official team together, but they, they certainly take an interest in, in the, these matters, all of them. And, and that, uh, that particular inc- incident you're talking about, as I understand, was a regional Incident. It not only occurred in one place; it occurred in several places. Um, yes, and it I, was. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it happened just in Brazil either. So, no. so regionally down there, they're they're a little more in tune with what's going on with each other, even if even if it isn't being discussed up here. 
Um, that's part of a, a real problem we have in the U.S. and ufology here is, is a, an isolation and a sense of dominating the conversation. Yes. Um, other countries. Other countries have a lot going on. There are some good researchers elsewhere, and it behooves us all to pay a little attention to the larger picture, because if this is a global phenomenon, and it quite clearly is, then we need to be listening to our brothers and sisters elsewhere. Uh, on carefully. that note, which cases these days do you find very interesting and promising um, as far as anything that is made, let's say, for instance, the media these days? in the last few years, things that you find very oh. worthwhile. Well, you know, it's clear to me that the media uh, don't, don't serve us. Um, uh, uh, and it's, it's as true for political matters as it is for science and particularly for this subject. Um, there's a big disconnect between the corporations that own our, our media and those of us who need information. And, uh, uh, and it's just the way the marketplace works, I, I, I think. Um, but but as far as the cases that I find most interesting, Sam, I, I've pretty much walked away from uh, any visual cases, uh, anything that has to do with cameras or or, or, or video, with, with just some rare exceptions, because um, the, the the computer graphic uh, activities are just so prevalent these days, and people have a habit of publishing first and then asking for help second, which which doesn't serve the investigation at all, as, as you well know. The best cases, in my opinion, again, are aviation cases. We can apply the same suite of investigative skills to those cases that we can, uh, in, in each one. Uh, um, so we have a, a, a consistent series of questions that we can ask and, and develop a, a solid data stream that, that's, that, that scores fairly highly. That's something that we can, we can do further uh, analysis with. So I look at aviation cases primarily. There's a couple of reasons. Uh, aside from the, the, the skill set of the investigation, and that involves the quality of the uh, reporter. Uh, and it isn't so much that a pilot's a better reporter than anybody else, but it's that he's on, on the job. And there, there are limiting factors uh, to keep him from making utterances about things UFO or, or UAP. Um, uh, and so if he decides to talk about that anyway, uh, yeah, I think it adds a, a little bit of legitimacy to the the conversation if he's willing to risk his career to have a conversation about it so that helps uh, a bit in terms of credibility in the cases as we're um, getting our initial or preliminary data in a pile so now, hopefully that helps now how are you if you, if you today say for instance uh, somebody starting out in the field and having an interest uh, mm. Heineck said you have to specialize he told us to Ted Phillips time and time again, you need to specialize. And where, mm -hmm. would, where do we see the greatest void or, let's say, um, uh, A, a void where we need people to specialize in, B, areas of new promising either technology or, um, say, for instance, avenue of reinterpretation or new interpretation. I'll leave that leave it up to you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like this idea of specialization. This is what NARCAP does. We're specialized around aviation cases. We, 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 we literally, when we wrote our little analysis back in 2000, uh, Dick and I just kind of wrote up a, a sort of a, uh, a state of the situation document, and it involved uh, basically that very discussion. You know that, that specialization is going to be the key to survival in the future in this field. That you can't be a generalist and expect to get very far. Um, 
there, there are a lot of inherent problems with every branch of this discussion, whether you're looking at um, um, the nuts and bolts studies uh, like, like I'm doing, um, where, where you're very much data and uh, um, very much, uh, um, well, hard data oriented. Uh, um, but the, the same thing goes for the softer um, investigations like uh, ab abduction type phenomenon, uh, other things that, that people are looking into that are peripheral to this general subject of what's flying around out there and where the heck did it come from. Uh, so yeah, I, I think specialization is important, uh, but, but I think we, we've got a problem in that, that a lot of these, these areas of discussion are a bit premature. They, they aren't, they, they're in their formative states and they really aren't really research yet. No, uh, the conversation is going on around abduction, for example, but but the real research isn't there. Right. Um, and what has been done, and I knew don't, I do know about MUFON's initiatives in this area, some of them anyway, um, is is so foundational and so preliminary that it isn't even in the in the public domain. Um, so, uh, yet the conversation rages. Yeah, uh, that's the and these kind of these kind of things aren't helpful, in no. my opinion. No, I um, agree. I agree. Unfortunately, from uh, wearing multiple hats, you know, doing media and versus actually being entrenched in the field, uh, and that is sure. multiple hats too. Um, yeah. I could, I could honestly say a triage, and this is something I was, I was going to ask you about, uh, as far as a general a, a manner of triage, just inf information comes in, who do you give it to? We need to be far more cohesively across the board, understanding who does what and how well do they do it. And if we had that, be it a glossary or whatever, to get a case in and give it to different people, uh, boy, oh boy, wouldn't that be wonderful. Now, I know where to go when I have nope. an aviation case. That That's simple. We, well, sure. We've done this together and worked together well, and it works out fine. But we need to have this, uh, I think, on multiple levels, especially uh, physical evidence. And uh, one thing that I, it just every time I talk to, you, I keep forgetting to um, to tell you is is the the observation skills and an optic psychi uh, uh, psychiatric uh, analysis, and and this is very important. Um, so critical. Yes. And uh, it, it's really critical. Um, it, and and I mean, we're really fortunate to have somebody like Dick on board. Yeah. Um, but but it, I, I can see the thrust of your question. And, and this kind of goes back to a lot of what's wrong with, with this study. We have a lot of self-declared researchers and there's no true center in the field. Um, and you saw what happened with O'Hare. Here we are. We've got a case. Looks like looks looks promising or at least good enough to dig into. And uh, and all we can get out of out of uh, uh, Peter is two or three days before he goes public, declaring that aliens have invaded the O'Hare. Yes, um, and that that is my that is my uh, number one. Um, <laughs> I love him to no end, but bringing a case forward before we even get to assemble things is an absolute no-no. Yeah, and, and, and it absolutely it absolutely hurt us. It hurt the reporters. Um, at the same time, we may not have got to the reporters, but you know, this is the, this is the problem. I, you, you you try to pull a coalition together. You say, okay, Peter, you know, we're trying to meet certain standards here. Peter, would you like to participate in helping us with these standards? And the answer is no. And uh, uh, and and so here you try to raise the standards, but but I guess ego, for lack of a better word, um, prevails. And 
Um, and I can't tell you the number of times that I reached out to people, including Peter and others, asking for aviation cases following in, in, and, and to follow the strict protocols in order to save that data and make sure that it was useful to the world. Yes. Um, and was rebuffed over and over again because there's some jealousy over who has control over the data. And the bottom line is, is that just because we do an investigation doesn't mean we control the data. We just, we're just responsible with it and we don't publish it until we're finished. You know, and then we have a majority report. And if somebody else wants to write a report or two, and we decide who's majority and who's minority, then that's great. But, but we don't put anything out there that's immature. And all of this really kind of clashes with the idea of freedom of information and all. And and it shouldn't. It shouldn't. I mean, no. if you really want good data. No. So building coalitions, as everybody's learned in this field, is nearly impossible. Um, trying to pull people together and get them to to uh, agree to a, a standard of data collection and a, a standard of image management is, is, well, that's why NARCAP won't have anything to do with, with the rest of ufology, more or less, that image management is so critical. And, and, and if I find, if you want to work with our organization, I go to your website and I see a little alien doing the can-can across the bottom of your screen, we're done. Yeah. You know, the conversation's over because we need to go, we need to take it to a better, a higher level than that, a professional level. And, the majority of folks that we deal with out there just have no idea what that means. And, and I agree with can't, you. 100%. Can't imagine it. The images images is is crucial as far as that goes, and even terminology. I, I just get mm -hmm. uh, very upset with terms like believers. Uh, and everybody around me knows that is that is the ultimate no-no word. Believe in in my terminology. Oh, yeah. can't can't believe anything here. No. You either know or you don't know. And you ask That's your damn it. questions, or you sit quietly until the answer comes to you. But Correct. You got to have some courage and say, I don't know. Yes. And, and the other one is proof. We're interested in evidence to support theories, and that is science. That's science. And, That's um, right. And then and then and then the rest of it's dialogue with with qualified minds. That's you know? it. And we always and, have uh, to remain open as far as whatever what we're dealing with is, I think, a multiplicity of things, as, as I believe, right. as I'm, I'm certain you're, you're, you're on the same board with. Um, Absolutely. And same thing with that. That makes it as interest, far more interesting than anything else. It isn't just uh, uh, people visiting us from someplace else. We have an array of phenomena here. And, that's right. Uh, that's right. And it deserves it requires strategy. Yes. You've got to be complex in your strategy uh, in, in engaging this topic. And, and that's something that, you know, anybody that's, you know, kind of thinking about grabbing the reins and, and writing into the field here um, should be aware of that, that strategy is so critical. Image is so critical. You know, for years, uh, Sam, I, I, I would not do anything NARCAP oriented without a suit and a tie on, period. Right. Never. Right. You know, um, always made sure I, I was looking my best. Um, and that that even if it was a five minute meeting over coffee just to just to say hi and bye, I made sure that, that my image was, was as impeccable as I could manage. And and I pretty much carried it that way throughout. Um, um, I've gotten in a few uh, I, I I don't think anybody doubts my opinion in this field. <laughs> oh <laughs> definitely. You know, People where, definitely take where, where I come down on things. Oh, sure. but, uh, uh, but at, at the same time, I, I, uh, image has been fairly critical, and that's why we have the support of people like Dr. Valee and, and others for 11 years, people who are very sensitive about their image. Um, um, and reasonably and, and I, so. I, 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 just, think I just don't feel that ufology, uh, for the most part, I don't think any of the organizations out there really care about it. I, 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 I offered one observation for MUFON the last time I, I met with uh, Robert Powell and, and, and those guys and uh, Jan. And uh, said that whatever you do, 
bottleneck your communications into the media. Uh, do not authorize anybody outside of a single point contact to talk about MUFON. Um, it would probably be the single most helpful thing you could do to protect your image and, and get a get a shift in, in, in your culture. Right. Um, and a shift in perception is uh, don't let people talk anymore unless they're they're at, at state director level, you know. And that and, and that's with briefing and an okay from the main office, you know. Right. Um, there's simple things like that. Yep, I agree. You know, that, in fact, yeah. right now, myself, uh, when I do interviews, I don't make sure MUFON is, isn't even attached, so there's nothing that can come back right. to haunt them. And uh, right. uh, even on the radio, um, John Stevenson set up a website for our, um, for the show. It, it says no affiliation with Illinois MUFON. It's just, it's just a matter of, you know, keeping things very, very defined. You know, radio, this is media, this is information. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. also entertainment. So there's... Well, and, and you know, right now, MUFON's a little bit in the news, too. So, I mean, there is a buzz going on around it, so it probably isn't completely inappropriate to bring it up. But I, I, no. I understand the the, the 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 line you're walking there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, you know, there some of the uh, issues that are being brought up are, of course, I feel, are far... You know, are legit, uh, but again, what I've done—I uh, hate politics. I just want to do research. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. I have no time yeah. for it. But unfortunately, it's—it's it's the matter of of politics to how we get things done with each other. You know, and give and take that we we have to we have to have politics. Uh, there are other concerns that go well beyond that, and I think are rudimentary oh, and, sure. and very fundamental. You. You know, the, you know, we have all this talk about who's going to be the, you know, the manner of getting a director and stuff. And well, right. if uh, if if by chance the, you know, there are other issues that are far more important than we have, we, as far as who's at the helm is the last uh, we need to be worried about, or the manner of getting right. somebody there. But I well, don't it, you know, know what's going on. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a convoluted situation. You have a have a mature organization with a lot of history behind it, and, yes. and mm -hmm. so so there's a lot of work in terms of resolving which way to go and how to do it, and and it's going to be contentious. You have a lot of lot of opinions contributing, and I'm sure something healthy will come out of it in the end. Oh, I'm um, sure. I'm sure there's enough. Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, there there, the element is 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 pretty much uh, sound and. and uh, you're always going to have problems. As far, as far as the subject matter, uh, this is how I came into the field. and I, Well, I came into MUFON thinking this. I wasn't that naive to think that somehow there would be uh, an avenue away for certain, say, interested parties, we'll just say that, outside of the organization, would be able to access information if, in fact, it were that critical. Uh, a yeah. national security issue and the subject was already under the microscope well into the uh, you know well into the the 50s early 50s uh, via the convening of different um, think tanks and panels Robinson mm -hmm. etc so of right. course to think anything contrary that 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 you know Everything you put out there is going to be kept safe and sound, and there's no concerns. You know, that's a bit naive. And today, with uh, pretty much anything and everything uh, being accessible, if it's in a electronic format or digital format, right. there are no secrets. 
So you, you can't think that. I, I personally have never thought that, well, you know, everything's perfect and peachy. and But to have somebody actually entrenched in the organization is an entirely different scenario or individuals. Well, NICAP experienced that. Yes. And it pretty much destroyed the organization. And um, this, this is something you have to watch for. Um, that's part of the reason why we structured our group the way we did. Uh, we, we really don't have a structure uh, with NARCAP. We have, we have a couple of organs with our research associates and our technical specialists and our advisory committee. And then there's, there's Dr. Haynes running the research and I run the administrative side. Uh, and, and, we're, um, and, and it's just Dick and I shoulder to shoulder. So any decision that's made comes from he and I. And most, nobody else is involved. There's no board. There's no foundation to... To, to manipulate or control the direction of our of our arc and and that that's that's been really kind of key to our success is that we we've just been able to put our foot down say it's our game play our way or go away yeah um, it's very streamlined um, and and it's kind of what's needed in this field because it it's new and we really couldn't anticipate what the challenges would be for our organization as as it grew mm-hmm. and uh, we're in a we're in a transitional phase right now um, that that is going to change our org chart in the way we're structured considerably and the way we go about things in the future uh, we're probably going to shift to a membership organization we're going to uh, take on a few processes that we hadn't uh, in the past and, uh, uh, and we're going to start asking for funding and to, to pay to have some paid positions and I, I think that in the end uh, 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 we're going to have to very carefully anticipate how control and power moves in the organization to make sure that that the image and, and that the work itself is, is, is paramount, that it remains the priority and that isn't diluted or lost in some other nonsense related to organizational viability, you know. Well, that makes um, sense. But the thing it's is, tough. it's easier to collect a dollar or $40 from um, many people who have an interest in the subject matter than it is to have to go to a individual ask for millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands or for that matter even a thousand dollars without some strings attached that really could destroy uh, some aspect or potentially cause uh, questionable conduct or something that would jeopardize right. the organization some way you know what i'm well, saying you know th- 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 this is the only way you you avoid that particular thing is through impeccability Right, and it's impeccability on a couple of levels. You need to be impeccable about your image and about 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 your your management in general, mm-hmm. and and then your, your the public perception or the perception of your co- target culture needs to be very high. They need to think well of you, and then, um, and then when you walk in and you say, um, "I need so much money in order to conduct X, Y, or Z," uh, you mean it, and it's not to do anything other than that. And if they're not going to help you with that, then you don't accept their help. Exactly. Um, I don't. I won't accept strings, Mr. Bigelow. Uh, darkened our doorstep uh, once or twice over the last ten years. I, I won't accept money from him. Um, I won't. There's a number of people I would simply would not take the money from, particularly if it comes with a stack of white paper next to it. I, I'm not signing on it on anything for NARCAP. If you like what we do and you want to help us, we'd certainly appreciate your donation and your assistance. But. I'm not selling our souls for no. that help. Dick and I have done this out of our pockets for 10 years. And really, if, if you want to succeed in research and, and you have some goals in terms of knowledge and information, then you can't compromise that if you, if you want to get where you want to go. Yeah, keep it the research. Um, that you, yeah, keep it your research. Keep it, yeah, keep it at house. The, the yes, other thing right. is, as you, uh, and this is um, 
a problem. The, the image of anything UFO related um, mm. has already taken on a flavor that it cannot be uh, looked at scientifically. So grants and everything are just, you know, well outside the, the scope of ever getting your hands on. Now, yeah. doing it under a phenomena, a scientific study of, uh, you know, say, for instance, the Earth-like phenomena, the right. anything else, uh, guess what? Money does show up the doorsteps without the the. Uh, the That's right. When you start talking about unidentified aerial phenomena and you stop talking about aliens and, yes. and you, you show that you're, you're, you've got some scientific integrity and that you're not on an alien hunt, that you're, you're trying to understand atmospheric phenomena, and it might include that. It doesn't preclude it. You're, you know, uh, doesn't mean it isn't there. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's actually operating at the proper level of the conversation. Yes, that's scientific whole, objectivity. This, you know, it's it's, it's that's being right. objective. This whole discussion is so premature. Mm -hmm. And 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 if you if you go back to where the the subject is actually viable, yeah, you can probably find funding and and interest in what you're doing. But you have to be real about what you, what's known and what isn't. And, and again, terminology is really critical. I, that's why NARCAP chose the term unidentified aerial phenomena. And then it's UAP slash UFO or UAP slash light, basically. Right. Uh, uh, it, it's, a more, it's an objective term. It doesn't carry the charge that, that uh, UFO does, which is synonymous with alien spaceships and abductions and all the rest of it. Um, so, so, yeah, and, and that's part of what NARCAP did, basically, is we walked away from ufology I've got a couple of dirty uh, letters published about us uh, you know declaring that we were part of ufology whether we wanted to be or not and blah 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 and uh, bottom line is that that we're judged by the worst behavior in ufology the best research is judged by the worst behavior of course and and so when we walk into a situation we're carrying all of the misbehavior of, of mr. Weber and all of the rest of the folks out there that that are blathering nonsense um, uh, it, it, it affects our ability to do any work at all. And so I have to be a bit reactionary, and I have to stand up and, you know, when Mr. Weber declares that I'm a, a, a hostile debunker under gray reptilian mind control, ask him for references. You know, <laughs> where the heck did he get that from? You know? uh, journalistic integrity, right? Scientific integrity. Yes. You know, that, the foundation of credibility. And so when you ask him where the story comes from, you ought to be able to check their facts. If they can't give you that, then they're lying. <laughs> they're missing the boat on such a, a grand scale that y y you really have well, they're to damaging wonder. The, they're damaging the boat. <laughs> oh, damaging God, the sinking boat. it. And that, that's yeah. where I really have to wonder as far as their intentions. And, and not to sound conspiratorial, but I cannot actually say that that isn't even a possibility. You never know. You know, judge them, judge them by their effect. Exactly. When I, when I walk, Look at things forensically. Room, <laughs> when I walk into a room full of FAA uh, representatives and I can't get their attention, or uh, uh, certain questions are asked that are so inappropriate that obviously nobody's taking me seriously, uh, I can thank Mr. Weber and I can thank... Um, uh, all of the other lunatics out there that that feel that the uh, the internet is their little place to you know push their beliefs, um, true, and 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 they they think they have a right to do that and they may well have a right to do that but the damage they do ought to ought to ought to be considered in their actions as well and I think all these new age believers out here that want to sit around and talk about the agendas of various alien races are if you want to point at one reason why we don't have a lot of the the 
traction on this in this field that we should have. It's the nut factor. Yep. <laughs> uh, no question yeah. about it. It's real hard to um, weed out the nut jobs, you know. It's, that's the problem. You go to a conference. You have we, uh, for instance, when we'd have our conferences. The bottom line is the only people with booths booths out there to sell anything are the people who are speaking, and they're just selling their book their books, and that's it. Mm-hmm. DVDs and uh, very controlled. No uh, t-shirts with alien things, no alien well, this, images. This is the thing right this. now. It's the uh, media is just huge. Oh, sure. I mean, it, cowboys and aliens, uh, Avatar. Well, you know, yes, it's, but that's but that's but that's entertainment. That's exactly. Fine. And you that's, can't even get an article about UFOs out there with your name on it without having a flying saucer graphic pinned up in the corner. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't help. At no, all. people no. don't take it serious when they talk about it on the news. They they laugh, they crackle about oh, it. Sure. You know, it's just it needs to be looked at as a serious uh, field, and people look at it well because it isn't taken seriously by the very people involved in it. All t- that's I right. Say we, not if if we don't take it seriously as a collective, nobody's going to take us yes. seriously. And we're, like I said, the best research is lumped in with the worst. Yep. Yes, you know. and that's also true. The thing is that at least if the bulk. If the if the mass would at least adhere to some standard of, of procedure, and and move it along, it, it would be it would move quicker. Um, again, you know, if you have a, a crest of a wave, and, and you know all about waves, if you sure. have the base of the wave being higher, then the crest is going to be even that much higher. So the thing is, if we could keep the base, if we could have some some standardization, and, and if anything, our language and the manner of which we go about doing things, you know, um, absolutely, and especially in the eye of the public, in the eye of the public, absolutely, uh, amongst each other, we could sit around, joke, and have a blast, blah blah blah. But in the public eye, you know, an entirely different. Um, well, look at our website, Sam. You know, I've got disclaimers on, on, on every page that's relevant saying that we don't know anything about aliens. We don't know anything about flying saucers. We're just collecting the data. We know there's a debate out there. We know our materials are used to justify various materials. We don't condone that. And, uh, and I, I've seen, I personally seen a number of our papers used by various individuals out there to further their own um, pseudoscientific approaches to things. Um, I find it deplorable. I tend to write them a letter telling them so if it looks like the thing's well off the tracks. Um, but but there's not a lot you can do about it because you put the information out in order to be transparent and make it available. Right. Um, so, so the only direction we can go in in terms of actually finding alliance and allies is into the, the uh, official field of moving towards the government of Chile and France and these other things and operating at that level because we can't, there's no peer group to operate with at no. the level NARCAP functions. No, I don't I, know of any other group in ufology, particularly American ufology, that, that functions that way. NICAP, NICAP's pretty good, I'll give them credit, but they're not, they're not doing current research as far as I know. No, unfortunately. Um, uh, KUFOS is, is uh, you know, we're very close with them. Uh, some right. people are still busy doing things, but for the most part, it's, you know, in the last few years, things have fallen, not apart, but things are just not, you know, people are tied up with other There's individual efforts of merit. Oh, There's certainly. no question about oh, it. Very There's some good, good papers written good every work. year. Um, we're yeah. seeing some good papers. But this is something that we could help with, too, Sam. And mm-hmm. It's part of my conversation I'm having with the, with the at, at the government level with these uh, other nations is, is uh, a discussion of developing a peer review team. 
that's and what that needs, people, needs to be done. People can do whatever they want. They can publish whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. But if they want a stamp of approval, then they need to submit it to a peer review team. Yep. And our peer review team will look at it and, and give it give it the, the thumbs up or thumbs down. It won't be so much because of content, but it'll be whether or not it's followed form. You know, you, you don't want to steer the conversation. You know, you don't want to control where the data goes or what data goes. That's 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 our problem with Nature Magazine and a lot of others is that when we submit materials, they don't they find the subject unfortunate, so they don't go further. And that's not the job um, of a peer review team. Uh, but but what it can do is help set standards so that if people are going to push an idea out there, they will it it it, it will they'll know that that the presentation itself complies with some basic integrity, um, scientific integrity. That's um, the way it should be. And, and I, I think uh, it's something I've been kicking around for a while and I've had a couple of sort of uh, preliminary conversations with some people but but I really think it's the direction to go in and, and what we need is probably seven or eight people that are willing to donate a few hours a month to reading white papers and then discussing them uh, 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 and then grading or rating them uh, prior to release and then maintaining a website to go along with that or at least a blog page or something that would would carry a, a tombstone on the internet. No, that's a very good idea. Very good. And that's what um, we need. We definitely need that yeah. in the field. So, that's so who scientific. Do you think the candidates would, who do you the think candidates? candidates would, yeah. Oh yeah. boy. So, actually, I don't know how many in the country. There's probably a handful of them. Um, it should be international. I yes. I, 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 I think that's the other problem. You brought that up and you keep bringing it up. And I'm glad you do. And um, please, when you do more interviews and stuff, echo that international. Right, talk about the other guys. Yeah, there's That's right. great research. There's out good there. work being done out there. There are some really good researchers in South America. We've got some great guys in Europe, and and America just dominates the discussion and doesn't really, you know, we we pull some of the the the, the more loony folks out out of the woodwork in both of those areas. But as far as the real concrete researchers go, they're not getting. People like Massimo Teodorani just not getting yes. airplay at all, well, and they really deserve it. Even Japan um, has a UFO oh. research uh, division. Sure, you know, and we're the only country out there that seems to not care or seems to not talk about it uh, politically, and it's just kind that's of that's bad. Yeah, it's not cool, and we are the biggest yeah. uh, power in the world, so people tend to believe it. You know? Well, the biggest media too. So the thing is, the end result is wherever the the voices and the money. That's where they're going to have uh, credence, unfortunately. That dominates the conversation. Yeah. That's right. Now, in the academic field, where do you see uh, any sort of, um, let's say, legitimacy or potential legitimacy as far as research uh, in other countries outside of, oh. say, for instance, South America? Uh, are you seeing well, anything in Europe? Well, for, we, we, we're in the process of completing establishing a NARCAP Germany right now. Oh, good. Um, and we've got folks like, um, um, uh, oh, Illibrand, uh, and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Vincent Juan Biester Olmos out of wow. Spain, a uh, very good researcher. Yeah. Uh, um, Dominic Weinstein out of France. And we have several other researchers in France who are doing a fine job. Um, most of them are on the College of Experts for GPAN, uh, for their government research team. Excellent. Um, uh, you're, and, you're going uh, the route. You're, you're you're doing the right thing. Um, how about here? Why not here? Is it oh, is it just an impossibility? Do you think? I, I I think that 
that you know oftentimes for example I get I get offers for help from time to time and I'm and they're, I'm they're gratefully accepted I look for I'm looking for staff right now I, I need administrative help for example and uh, um, as far as and and but when researchers come to us here, we, we look closely at a number of things. We're looking for journalistic and scientific integrity. We're looking for uh, uh, um, detail-oriented and pr probably some prior examples of writing and research. And, uh, and then we're looking for an understanding of how to manage the image in this field. And a lot of these folks come with baggage already. They're pre-published um, in stuff that probably won't help us in the long run as far as our image goes. Um, a lot of folks are really out into... into they're way further along than the dialogue deserves, uh, as as far as their interest goes. They're they're dealing with abductions. They're dealing with Pleiadians. They're dealing with what spaceships are made of, uh, and how they do what they do, and whether they're interdimensional or not, and all of this stuff. When when really what we need are serious serious people that are willing to accept that the state of the inquiry is where it's at right now, and do what they can to further that problem rather than further their own uh, agenda around their own. Hypotheses, I guess. I think uh, state of the inquiry is is really should be coined and and, and clarified to people, because that's right. And I, I again, this is something when I'm speaking, my own opinions or deductions are just that. If there's that's evidence right. to support it, it's at a very, uh, uh, you know. A very low level at this stage, but mm -hmm. but it's entertainable. It, it can't be thrown out the window. The for instance, the interdimensional aspect is something I never even want to entertain. But of, in 2004, uh, too many things were going on that that would would be explainable or or plausible in that if we were to take that into consideration. Uh, as far as you know, three that cases. But and I and I can appreciate I can appreciate um, um, looking ahead a bit with a case and sort of uh, uh, you know checking its hyperbole and, and saying well if, if this is so and this is so then we might have to entertain that this is so that's also. it entertain um, you know and and at the same time you know the the, the facts of the discussion are, are are a bit more stark like you said I don't want to when I look at this stuff, I don't want the door closed in the future to something that might be relevant. But if it isn't appropriate to talk about it now, I'm not going there. Right. Uh, and and that's take that's taken a lot of personal discipline because I, I've seen different variations of UAP, uh, both during in my research work and and in my personal life. And uh, and I understand how important they are, and understand how destabilizing exposure to certain varieties of this can be, or the belief that you've been exposed to it can be. And uh, and I can appreciate the feeling of the need to act, the hypervigilance that comes from it, because basically an awful lot of people who are exposed to this phenomena directly suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, yeah. and, and so that's, that's where we see them up on the podiums and, uh, and confabulating their, their stories and, and, and doing all that along with the mentally ill. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the folks that, that, aren't doing it out of, that, that aren't doing it based on real experience. Uh, you hit two things, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the hypervigilance. And as I explain yeah. to people who've had where I, have, I am certain of a genuine uh, encounter with the phenomena, maybe mm -hmm. on even multiple levels or, and frequencies, I always tell them, yeah. there will come a time that you will hate me. 
And they keep on saying, why would I hate you? I says, because I am telling you to refrain from certain conduct. And uh, yeah. uh, getting on the Internet, trying to get on every show to tell them what they've seen, what they've done, and uh, isn't exactly what I want want to see if I'm going to be working in a, uh, a very tight-lid uh, case with a lot of evidence. I don't want to see That's that right. Uh, no, and, and I... I've got I've got a, an example of a young lady who sent me a video that is just it'll leave your chin on your chest basically. Um, I have no reason to doubt her veracity. She made the mistake of, of going public with it and got a hold of me immediately and just lamented the whole maneuver from beginning to end. Um, we're very close friends. She's never disclosed her name in public. The video made a splash and it went away. Nothing good came of it for putting it out there. Uh, the promoters picked up a few nickels, but but the uh, but as far as her getting the help that she deserved, going to bed every night tying herself to her husband for crying out loud, she yep. didn't get what she needed out of that. Oh God! No. And 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 believe me, for any of you folks out there that are that are dealing with this stuff firsthand, um, uh, the last thing you want to do is go into the public domain. Find people with good credibility. Talk to Sam. Find me. Find others that are going to protect you. Uh, everybody else wants to prey on you. Yes. Uh, you're going to be the reason for another 20 minutes to a half hour discussion in a conference. You're going to be extra filler on somebody's website. You're going to be this or that. You're going to fit into somebody else's agenda. And the bottom line is that whatever it is you know and whatever it is you're experiencing, you're not going to help mankind with it. And that's where your focus should be. Right. Help us. You know. The best and, cases, uh, say, say for instance, like for the radio show, are those cases that are just simple observations, maybe a little more, a little more than that, but where mm -hmm. it's not falling into the category of being a potential case. It has to have legs. It has to have more than that. that, that that's right. It's just sort of teasers to keep people no, noticing what's being seen, but that, yes. that's a little different than, than, than going public with something. And, and, for example, my work with NARCAP is specifically due to not getting up on a podium with one of several experiences I've had. And believe me, they're, they're podium-worthy. Okay, uh, but but there's nothing to be gained by me standing up there adding one more story in the pile of stories. Exactly. But but the, but but I'll tell you, our success is due to taking that experience quite seriously. And folks, if you've got an experience out there under your belt, take it seriously and don't be foolish about it. Think right. carefully about what you do. Exactly. Uh, I so, think that the anyway. thing is to bring it out. You know, there's like multiple levels of 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 where people how we have to address the consciousness, the, the public mm -hmm. consciousness. From the research level, you're at where it should be. I, I, that's where I feel, and I applaud you guys like you wouldn't believe. Thank you. Uh, that's where it has to be. For the communication, it has to be, it, it's entirely different, but it has to be more, there has to be a better control. I think that's right. uh, words are very important, and that's where the first level control, because the, the this is a very interesting thing. Uh, even though we have YouTube, we have television, et cetera, et cetera, the, uh, it's amazing. I, I think people put more credence into what they hear than versus, in fact, I know this to be, than what they see. So it's, hmm. it's, it's a very unusual thing, especially with this phenomenon. And, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll do little experiments on presentations to show some information, you know, video footage, and then have somebody yeah. come up there and just tell 
a a rendition of what they you know a story or talk about a rendition uh, of say for instance right. somebody else's uh, encounter with something, and the credence is held more so with the uh, the story than it is with the um, the actual evidence. Uh, uh, say for instance the video evidence or photographic analysis. It's amazing. I find that very interesting. So it, I think, well, you know, it's it's about how much information is actually in the burst, you know, in in the the visual burst versus the audio burst, and and there's almost invari invariably there's more in the in the in the spoken word, you know. There is. Um, and and you're right, it is strange. And Dick Haynes talks about this a bit too. They were doing studies with uh, astronauts on how to give them remote instructions to do experiments while they're up at the space station. So they set up these remote feeds between laboratories and started moving information between the two and testing what worked best and what didn't. That, then it seemed to bear out very much what you're saying there, that, that people need to hear, hear something um, it's, to, it's to get the most information. So. It's uh, psychology in this whole thing is, is uh, I think the phenomena tells us more about uh, ourselves than, than what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a terrific mirror. And um, I, I, I liken it to a Zen koan where you, where you have to hold a discipline, uh, a specific discipline of not, not exceeding a particular kind of thought while you push to solve a problem. And and it, 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 you may find enlightenment before you get an answer to this particular oh, subject. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I think you uh, hit that on the head, and that's a good tie-in. The yeah. where we go with this, I, I I don't know, but it has inadvertently affected humanity, even though without even unveiling itself, and and that's what I find so very very interesting. But then again, all phenomena does. Um, yeah, and. You know, to this date, we may not completely uh, understand lightning, lightning, but yet we know what it is. <laughs> you know, we, right. we we could identify it or identify with it, yeah, without completely oh, yeah. understanding what actually it is, because we have yet to take lightning in a um, in its entirety into a laboratory. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, we're just doing the best we can do, and and, and you know, and that that's that's that, that's really a good point, Sam. You know that, uh, and and even beyond that, you know, we we talk about information management in this field, and we worry about who's managing the memes, you know, who's who's pushing ideas into the field, where the disinformation comes from, or or where where information that serves as disinformation comes from, and all kinds of paranoia and all that stuff around. And at the same time, we have absolutely zero controls on our own information management. None whatsoever. Every single thought that, that takes place in this field is spewed out somewhere. And there's no zero information management at all, which I'm sure creates a lot of the sense of <laughs> disinformation out there, along with uh, makes it very easy for those who would want to move disinformation to do it. Look at all the con men in this game. Oh, you know, sure. They're well, I've, able to do what they do. Do you know Scott Ramsey? I know the name, but I don't know the person. Very nice guy. He did work on the Aztec uh -huh. case. Um, okay. And okay. I remember, well, we've met a few times that we were walking and talking, and uh, this was at uh, the Ozark uh, conference down there in Eureka Springs. And uh, it's, right before leaving to where wherever the heck we were going, there was a big um, 
I don't know, a couple couple of these researchers fighting with each other and he goes and he's laughing he goes sam you know they're always talking about the uh, uh the government and all these different agencies uh you know being a threat to uh the study of uh the matter here you know and he says the biggest problem are the people themselves that's right and it's so we true. found the enemy and they is us yeah <laughs> 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 old pogo here it is true that. and it's yeah. It's maybe it's yeah. it's an assurance that somehow that uh, the phenomenon knows itself. It will never be revealed. And, and many a time, uh, people ask me and I say, "Well, how do you relate to yourself in this?" I says, "At best, I may just be quality control." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I'm a gatekeeper more than anything. I uh, I'd like to think of myself as an adventurer, bravely going forth and finding knowledge. But I'm basically just telling everybody to sit down in the back seat and shut up. You know, it's a, it's a fairly limited role. You know, but uh, but but you know, I have I have hope for this study. I have hope that there that we're going to get where we want to go. I I know there's a there there. I've seen it with my own eyes. I trust my own body and mind, and and at the same time, I I, I trust the logical systems and and human experience in general to reveal what it is we do go through and uh, it in this process of learning about about these uh, these phenomena where we are and going to continue learning things about ourselves that are going to be controversial and challenging and and it's going to take time for the the information to move around and be absorbed and become accepted and uh, 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 and I've got a lot of empathy for human beings I, I've never been able to stand on a podium and actually speak to them as somebody who's been exposed to this themselves but if I if I could I would I would have an empathetic engagement for for people out there because uh, th this is a huge challenge to have one of these things show up in front of you is, if you're at all a thinking person has got to be one of the most uh, uh, destabilizing things uh, you can go through uh, one of many I'm sure but it's certainly a destabilizing experience and uh, Oh, it humbles uh, you. Oh, yeah, it humbles yeah. you at levels that 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 I don't that I know for. Uh, you would have to go through. Uh, I don't even know if I've been through. It's abuse. trauma. It's trauma. It, it, it's trauma. Yeah. It's post-traumatic stress. It, it, and I have nothing but empathy for everybody who 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 is living with that and trying to make good decisions around it. And all I would tell you to do is that in this field, look carefully, think carefully before acting. Right. Uh, particularly, particularly when it's about going into the public domain, think very carefully about that. Uh, the repercussions on you and your family and your lives can be can be huge. Uh, the predation factor is very high, and the actual results of return for your work can be very disappointing. It I've is. spent 11 years in the public domain, and uh, uh, it's just by the barest of luck I don't have a broken heart in this whole field because I've come so close so many times. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Oh, most definitely. Definitely. Um, you know. Uh, you get kicked there's around something something severe and and you're and there's a, there's a lot at stake oh. and there's a lot at stake in the process and that's why you keep getting kicked is because you know damn well that this thing is there's there's a lot of people depending on this thing being handled correctly you know now do you think yeah. on that note that the secret keepers on this issue and I'm sure there are mm. uh, do you think that now this is the thing that I it runs through my mind time and time again, that uh, there is validity for some of these people. Others, of, I think, it's exploiting things uh, for their own well well-being or a matter of control, possibly. 
and control. It's a funny thing. It's it's uh, yeah. It's not about money. It's about power. Uh, as far as the potential secret keepers, um, those yes. being for that they feel are for the benefit of humanity. Do you think ignorance? You know, ignorance is bliss, but it isn't. But is it in the long run? Uh, isn't it just this, another? This ch- uh, isn't it, it just shackles? It ch- it challenges the the foundational principles that we we base our perspectives on. There's no question about it. And at the same time, for example, um, you know, in 1960 we knew that uh, the Russians only had 20 operating intercontinental ballistic missiles, for example. And yet we knew that, and, and yet we were treating them like they had thousands of them, and that we were under the threat of imminent destruction. And uh, and so the Cold War was played out to raise our military standards to a very high level, and one might wonder why we went through all of that, unless um, perhaps we learned of something that we needed to be prepared for. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, again, this is all speculative stuff. And and at the same time, if if there was ever evidence revealed that that to to the military and intelligence community that there is a an ongoing off-world presence that is infiltrating and coming into the wire, laying hands on our people and uh, um, showing no respect for our boundary areas. Uh, there would probably be the idea that there's an occupation taking place and if that was the case there'd probably be a resistance and most of the world would not be part of that. Right. And it uh, would be best to, of course, keep it funneled as, as tucked away as possible because right. the very thought of it would be so um, it would empower your enemy. Yeah, it would empower the em- enemy, and and, and 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 not only that, he would he would understand your countermeasures and and take steps, and that would be that. And when when you're dealing with a technology that that is advanced, then then you're challenged in terms of what he can know and what he can't know, and how you protect that information. So you would find layers and layers of protection, layers and layers of cover stories, uh, and and above all, you'd see an awful lot of money being spent on 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 weapon systems that don't make a lot of sense, and. Right. Uh, uh, and so in that, that sense, there's a, there's a certain parallel in all of this that makes me a bit nervous. Uh, just, just from the way I've looked at a lot of these cases and the way they've been described from a tactical perspective, uh, one, uh, one would be uh, up in, uh, well, w- would be on alert, let's put it that way. Right. And, and that's, one, that's one way you could look at how, how the, the keepers of this, this information, if, if there are keepers and there is information, uh, uh, might be viewing it. Another way to view it is that, that uh, purely economic, in that uh, technologies are represented that could be exploited, and whoever can get control of that has power, as you put. Yes. And uh, those, those who can gain that power want to protect that and protect that opportunity. And again, the discussion would not move towards humanity or discussing protecting us or anything else. It would be, it would be purely towards uh, uh, finding parity through stealing technology from them. True. Um, See, I always I mean, find it's a very mercenary approach, but it could save us just as easily oh, as the sure. other approach. I, th- I think I think both we have a dichotomy going on there. For those that are really interested, um, truly interested for the well-being of humanity, and then mm-hmm. those exploiting it as being for the well-being of humanity by the preservation right. of the status quo, which I feel is the current, the current, uh, uh, and unfortunately maybe the larger portion of what is viewed as national security um, yeah, that's right and and I think unfortunately there is a, a massive volume of, of people entrenched in this that 
are not on board with that agenda, uh, but just may be manipulated. Um, and that's sad. Uh, absolutely. Um, but, I, but I'll have to offer this, this, Sam. In the 11 years that we've done work, we've had our papers published in the Department of Transportation, National Transportation Library as a resource. We've had, uh, um, we participated in a GAO inquiry at the request of Representative Davis. Um, we've, we, uh, we've signed an agreement with the government of Chile. We've done surveys with airlines. And, and in all of these activities and others, we've never, ever had a problem or, or been confronted by any of the powers that are or supposedly are around this subject. Right. We've Again, been in the bunker. Yeah. We've been in the bunker at Battelle briefing the ASRS uh, FAA folks. Uh, we've, we've, we've been around. Um, we've got NASA administrators on staff and, we, uh, uh, and we've had no problems, none whatsoever. Uh, nobody's ever come to us. Uh, the FBI handed out 55,000 national security letters uh, last year. Um, and, and as you, you know what a national security level letter is, you can't even tell anybody you got one. Right. Um, you can't tell your attorney you got one. Um, FBI just calls you and they tell you an agent's coming, they hand you a letter and it's a cease and desist order and, that's all, that's there, and there's no appeal to it. You can't. And they handed out 55,000 of those things. How many of them ended up in ufology? I have no idea. You know, none, as far as I know. I mean, we won't know, but but as far as I know, none did. Uh, we didn't receive any. And and so so my point is is that if there are gatekeepers, then either either what is known and what we're doing is so immaterial and so immature compared to what they know and what they're doing that they aren't threatened by it, or there there just is nothing going on that, that's um, in, in in that sense that's to be taken seriously. I think the yeah. controls in place already that we don't even have to worry about it after this long a period yeah. of time because we don't oh, yeah. hear about these things that happened in the past like we used to no and um, no. again everything i'm stating is just purely speculation right um, me too and um, um i'm 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 more interested in just doing the research myself my That's own right. personal experiences my own journey plenty of these events happen every day oh, today yeah. mm -hmm. you know you can argue about roswell all you want to but something happened today yeah, and, and it's probably juicy. It's probably juicy. Go dig in and see what's what's there. You don't, you know, it, the, the the that's the one thing about these phenomena that I'm I'm absolutely certain about, and that is that they are physical phenomena, and that that means that that there are rules of physics around their presence, and there are rules of physics to apply to understand them, and just get to work. You know. Yeah, you don't have to worry about uh, things that happened 40, 60 years ago because there's enough no. things going on today. Do your own research. That's right. Nothing to argue about. You know. Yes. And anybody who has so much um, as an interest can easily go out and find that we're dealing with something genuine. And this isn't make-believe. Or as, That's right. Uh, as, um, uh, again, I go back to Michael Shermer because he's front and center more so than anybody else. He's the poster child for skept so-called skepticism yes. And, yes. and debunking this um, um, subject matter. And by the way, he's... I don't know if you if you read the article he wrote on UFOs, UAPs, and CRAP. Uh, yes, I did. It was it was quite it was quite offensive, and um, it pretty much ended any any chance of he and I ever having a conversation. Yes, um, that that was probably one of the rudest and least scientific and and uh, most inappropriate bits of writing I've seen come out of that group. I and it, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, sorry. it destroyed their credibility. It did. Whatever the little bit they had, and there was no reason for it. But they did it. No. And uh, 
on and on and on. They, it, it, uh, the other one was uh, Seth on his SETI program. Inter you, you've mm -hmm. heard the interview with uh, Leslie Kane. Yes, I did. And then, of course, having Benja Benjamin um, uh, after afterwards on there, misrepresenting the facts on the O'Hare case, and on and on. Right. And on. My gosh, you know. Um, but then again, that's the do that's the dog and pony show for the public. Um, yes, it is. You, you you would know more. Why put Leslie? It's like it's like taking. Uh, uh, Oh, who, 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 who's a, a brilliant guy, mainstream brilliant guy, Tom Davis or any of these guys, um, or, or Eric Davis, um, and, and sit, sit them across from Alfred Weber. Yes. And you're going to get the same, same type of engagement. You're going to sit Leslie Keene across from uh, uh, somebody who, who doesn't even fit the qualification of a skeptic, you know, who, who, who's every bit a true believer in his own little world is, as Alfred is in his, mm -hmm. you know. And then, and then you're going to take a mainstream person who's intelligent and, and has a high degree of integrity, and then you're going to call that a debate. Um, <laughs> to, to, again, dog and pony shows uh, trying to make themselves relevant. And here's Seth out there looking for radio signals from aliens and acting like he's, he's sane and everybody else isn't. Right. You know? I mean, just, um, just at the... At the we, we've got just, way more evidence that, yeah. that UAP exists than we do that aliens are sending radio signals around. Absolutely. You know? so I, yeah, and that's the, the simple logic there, you know. And the tons so. of money. Imagine if you had a fraction of that funding. 143000 bucks a year Mr. Shostak makes. Yes. They, only 3%, oh, let's see, I, I understand only $3 million out of out of 25 or 30 or 40 million bucks that they get a year and donations actually comes from private sources. Almost all of it is government contracts. It's amazing. Well, and, see, and, and for a government that doesn't care and, and rocked away from SETI 25, 30 years ago, it kind of makes you scratch your chin a little bit. Well, see, that's where I yeah. says, where I keep on going back to the fact that, you know, it isn't so much that they're, they're listening, that they are listening for something. It is the fact that their accessibility to the very... Um, uh, the very radars that they have is open to far more than what is being told publicly. Oh yeah, yeah, they're 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 not being genuine. If, if Seth spoke amongst his own astronomers, and I've spoken to a number of them who've seen UAP, yes, uh, and and who've seen them in, inside the Earth's atmosphere and who've seen them in, in space, and uh, uh, and and there there there's a whole underground of them out there. Jacques Vallee first got into this because he was an astronomer. And, and he was working, and he saw, they, they saw something, and they, they had a data, uh, a sheet of data related to it, and he watched the director at his uh, um, observatory destroy it. Amazing. And uh, to, to, him, to him, that was the catalyst that moved him into this field. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Ted Rowe from Hawaii, everybody. You're listening to Threshold Radio. We'll be right back.
TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. With the month of October and Halloween fast approaching, we want you, the listener, to share your creepy stories with us. Call us, email us, text us your personal story, your local legends, and folklore. Every week in October, we'll read your story on air. You can even read it yourself if you're not afraid. Call or text us at 708-966-9UFO. 708-966-9836 or email John directly at ghost1 at bachelors-grove.com Thank you and we look forward to your stories. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Ranto and John Stevenson. Right now we have Suzanne Taylor's segment, Outside the Box. Suzanne, are you there? Well, I'm doing fine. I'm excited about our new segment here. So let's just recap a little bit since this is only our second time doing this, um, and we're going to be doing it regularly. Uh, I uh, come through the door of crop circles, so to speak, with which I have been involved um, for 30 years, I think. Every time I add it up, it's more years, but something like that. And uh, so um, I am sort of the biggest mouthpiece for trying to get the world to pay attention to the circles. And how do you get the world to pay attention to anything? You make movies. So I've made a couple of documentaries, one I'm the executive producer on, and the most recent one, uh, which is called um, What on Earth? Inside the Crop Circle Mystery, I am the filmmaker. I'm the producer, the director, the narrator. <laughs> I'm on camera. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Uh, but, you know, I'm really interested in that because it tunes us into a world... First of all, we have to say that the reason I'm interested in the circles is because we're not making them. And uh, there's a hoax aspect to them, but there's a real aspect where they're coming from elsewhere. And coming from elsewhere means that we have a, a world with more high intelligence in it than just humans. We don't have the acceptance of that broadly yet. And if we did, if people understood that uh, there is other intelligence in the universe, for real, not just science fiction, uh, we would have to think about everything again. We'd have to think about our place in the universe. Uh, it would bust us out of this little bubble in which we're so violent with one another and so destructive to the earth and only thinking of ourselves uh, as the big cheese. But if we were no longer that and we were really um, accepting the fact that other intelligence is engaging with us, it would humble us. We'd have to, you know, be in a conversation on earth. All intelligent beings would be talking to each other regardless of their nationality about what is this otherness that we're, we're in touch with. So. Um, because I've been interested basically in consciousness and in our worldview, in this contracted worldview where consciousness isn't even on the table as a significant aspect 
in scientific materialism that runs our world. Uh, and I'm just so aware that we need to change our basic perspective that the crop circles became a great vehicle uh, platform where we had an obvious uh, and dramatic example of the bigger reality. And so, you know, that's why I've been so attached to them. But I'm not attached to them because, oh, you know, crop circles are the be-all, end-all, e even though they are. What I'm really attached to is this larger universe in which uh, there are many things that are outside the box of ordinary reality. And as we open our minds to the fact that there is this larger universe, which doesn't have to happen just through the door of crop circles, we're in this larger, uh, more uh, uh, conscious kind of place where, you know, please God, compassion will replace greed as the, uh, the MO, you know, that we will feel ourselves as one humanity. Uh, so uh, having been um, very ardently uh, speaking about my movie for the last year or so, uh, it seemed like time to incorporate more of this kind of otherness, this kind of outside-the-box reality in my own presentation. Uh, the, the crop circles were kind of step one, and now I'm uh, wanting to move further uh, into uh, things that, you know, don't limit me to only places that are interested in UFOs and crop circles, but... Just all the unusual or... things. The, the wild, weird, yeah, right. and wonderful is what I've been calling them. Yeah. Yes, and the whole paranormal universe, you know, which is a larger playing field, um, you know, and trying to tune the whole world into that so that it is the prevailing understanding. So, okay, that's a little background to what we're doing. Yeah. and that we. Let me ask you one little sure. question. Did, did I ever ask you before, what got you involved in crop circles? Well, uh, they, they were just one interesting thing that came along in my world, which was um, really devoted to producing events and projects that had to do with consciousness and which had to do with our worldview. Early on, it was more about awareness and personal growth um, that came out of the 60s, I guess, uh, the next, mm -hmm. the, the kind of rolling wave of awareness that, you know, has been... Uh, developing ever since then and um, so I was already doing many other things uh, when the crop circles became um, they just crossed my path I, it so happened that I had a friend with a son stationed in the military in England and he would go out on his leaves and he would take pictures of what they were then calling landing pads for UFOs which were crop circles and oh, that's cool. so my friend showed me these pictures yeah, my friend showed me these pictures, and I thought, whoa, I'm so interested in consciousness, interested in, you know, our worldview, and wow, if that was for real, um, all the kind of stuff that I was dealing with was more uh, the kind of things that you work your whole lifetime to become more aware, you know, you work on yourself, so to speak. So that was kind of the start of your journey that got you into the crop circles then? From well, you'd appreciate, actually, that even before that, uh, I was an actress, and being a method actress, that's the time I came into acting when that was big, uh, you were always kind of looking inside yourself for the bigger reality that you, uh, and realizing that your personality was only something you had uh, chosen, so to speak, and there were many other possibilities, and your interior, you had a whole interior life, so that was a very natural 
uh, when the human potential movement came along that I, I thought, oh, people are going to therapy. Better they should get into uh, some of these wonderful uh, kind of awareness exercises. You don't have to go talk to a psychiatrist. Just get into self, self-awareness or all these wonderful new things that we were learning. That, that, so that was kind of you know the whole uh, umbrella of, of, of where I've come from in all of this. Uh, so so anyway, so now here we are at the end of the spectrum where I'm uh, tuning people to where I'm interested in bringing in other kinds of things that can't be but are. So they jar us out of this smaller space of awareness uh, where we're limited to what science tells us is real because all of these kind of things they are you you can do some scientific work on them you really can a lot of paranormal experiments last week we were talking about Russell Targ who ran mm-hmm. the Stanford Research uh, lab where remote viewing was funded by the CIA for 20 years uh, so and Russell himself did a lot of real scientific protocol experiments on paranormal things. I, I mentioned that Yuri Geller was one of his subjects. And, you know, that stuff does not go under the microscope, but there are ways in which you can test um, kind of uh, the difference between, um, oh, I'd have to have Russell on here explaining to you, the, the ways in which you know the future, uh, you can do this in kind of ESP kind of tests. So you you subject to, to scientific protocols. There's a certain amount of that you can do, and you can show that uh, that things aren't random. For instance, that there's a weight to uh, the way you can uh, predict the future, the way you can look at flashcards, and you can know what the next card is going to be. And then they take statistics on that, and they go, you know, they put you into a certain state of consciousness. You do this. And they, t- and they say, wait a minute, that's way off the deviating from the, the standard norm. I don't really know the language too well. Uh, where you show that, wait a minute, there's more going on in your psyche than just this little simple objective thing. Uh, and, but, but basically speaking, this whole world of paranormal is kind of ignored by standard science, even though a, a, a physicist like Russell, who's so far out, will do scientific experiments on it. Still, the standard scientific community tends to just turn its back uh, and this is this is what needs to change I mean we need to become much more interested uh, as a world in what's outside the box so <laughs> I like the way that all rolls right into the name of the show again <laughs> really really and into this episode that we're going to do today now a lot of the time John I mean you and I know we're just going to do little brief inserts into your other shows but today we happen to have the treat of the subject of one of the episodes I would have done that would have been, you know, my little 10-minute whatever, I'll tell you what happened, whatever, uh, to this particular person, and, but today, we have this person, and uh, so I'm going to do a little introduction to him, and rather than me tell you this uh, outside-the-box story about him, I'm going to let him tell you his story himself, and because you said you had... Uh, well, we have time now. We have. We're going to do this more like uh, we we are the guests on your show for a standard uh, guesting rather than Correct. because we have Doug here rather than just this little brief episode where I tell you another outstanding story in a brief little encapsulated form. So so I'm going to tell you about Doug Hayes. And when people get on um, 
your website, they're going to be able to click through to a post that I did about him, which is a long, actually a, a uh, I've reproduced um, a story from a newspaper that was done about him and about this particular experience we're going to talk about. People can read about it at length there in a well-written article, but Doug's going to tell you the story, and you'll also be able to click through to Doug. Uh, Doug's website to my website, all all the kind of things that um, you know will flesh out what we are talking about here. But let me just introduce you to Doug Hayes uh, and why it is uh, he is the featured you know uh, guest on this uh, show. So okay. I uh, have known Doug for some years. But it was after this experience, and I didn't know anything about this experience until I had known Doug for a while. Um, and the Doug that I know uh, is, which is, you know, the way he is now, uh, he just astonishes me with his physical prowess. Uh, he does triathlons. He climbs mountains. He is a ski patrol uh, uh Person, I don't know what you call that, a, a ski patroller uh, in <laughs> the wintertime here in one of our uh, ski resorts near L.A. Uh, he, um, um, he, he, he is a whitewater rafting guide. I mean, he's such a, you know... Oh, my gosh, he does everything, huh? <laughs> he does everything. Now, now, that's not all about Doug. He also is a screenwriter, and if anybody wants, he has a fabulous little... Oh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll link to that, Doug. Let's link to that. He's listening now. Well, Doug's got an amazing uh, introduction here. He has a wonderful... <laughs> well, well, I'd like to put it on a loop so that I can play it in my car. Well, you can. <laughs> it will all be recorded. I mean, you can do that. So anyway, a little more. Um, so he, he has a whole other background. Physical is not his profession. His profession, he's a writer, basically, and an actor. Sky, you'll see when you link through to my uh, post about him, I've got his picture on there now. Hunky, gorgeous. Uh, and uh, But he had a real he's had a real successful career um, as a writer, uh, and his dad was actually a very well-known television writer, and he used to write some with his dad. Now he's got this wonderful movie that he's trying to raise money for, and um, so we will link to the um, promo that he did for the movie, which is fabulous, and he's the guide in it. He's telling you about the movie, so you're going to get a lot of Doug. But now we're going to focus on this particular story that I learned about after I had known Doug in all these other aspects, and then I discovered, what? You were not supposed to ever be able to walk again? What? So now I'm going to turn you over to Doug Hayes, and I call the story, as you'll see in my post, Miracle on the Mountain for this accident that happened to him, and how he now, from there, and never going to walk again, is this very, you know, really uh, far out uh, athlete who, you know, beyond my beyond of how much athleticism. Oh, he's a brown belt, by the way, going for his black belt in one of those techniques. Technically red belt, darling. Oh, okay. Red. Okay, over <laughs> to you, Doug. Now it's your turn. Tell him about your story. Well, first, uh, thank you for having me aboard. Um, it's a beautiful introduction, and um, uh, Suzanne and I are uh, old friends and truly kindred spirits. Um, I, too, am um, amazed and fascinated and uh, deeply involved with this 
uh, awakening that I see occurring on our planet um, at this time, and um, and I've certainly now witnessed in my own life in a way that has uh, changed the way I view the world and and my place in it, and and I think that's really um, what this story shows, and and you know you'll understand after I tell this story. Um, why it's had such a profound impact uh, in my own life and why I'm so delighted to have the opportunity to share it. It sounds like it's um, going to be interesting considering she said that you weren't going to be walking again and she just described everything you did. So it's got to be an amazing <laughs> story. Right. Uh, well, I think so. Uh, it's, certainly, uh, it's certainly changed everything for me. Um, you know, I've, I've always had kind of a deep uh, spiritual background and and uh, a sense of a, a divine connection in my life. Um, and this was one of those experiences where um, all of that just seemed to come together and everything went right, and um, here I am. Uh, but it certainly does represent a miracle on the mountain, as Suzanne calls it, uh, and then beyond as it's manifested in my own life. And, um, and now as I'm you know, really bringing it forward and, and sharing it with others, um, I find that it truly uh, has become a gift and a, and a central focus in my life. And, and so here we are. Uh, let me just flip the clock back now to um, February 12th of 2000. Um, I was on ski patrol at one of our local mountains, one of our local resorts, a major uh, Southern California resort. Um, I've been a ski patroller for almost 20 years. Uh, and this was, as I said, Valentine's Day weekend uh, in 2000. I was on patrol. Um, one morning, that morning, uh, the snow was just beginning to move in. We had a, you know, light snow flurries, and it was overcast. And I was out doing what we call a hill check, just looking for, you know, any problems or issues on the hill. And uh, you know, just a morning routine, and um, I'm coming down through an area where we have our snowmaking machines on, uh, the snow guns, uh, and we do we do a lot of that in Southern California. You know, uh, in Big Bear where I work, we have 330 days of sunshine a year, so uh, uh, the locals aren't going to wait for natural snow. They uh, they want it on the hill on Thanksgiving, and they want it there until Easter. So uh, we have a system that provides that for them, and. Uh, I was on my way through an area where we had the snow guns on and just, you know, looking around, checking for any issues. And um, I happened to run across a berm of snow from one of our snow guns, and um, it was very wet and sticky. And uh, just in an instant, my skis uh, froze up on the snow. They hit this little berm of snow, and they stopped dead. Uh, I kept going, and I broke out of my heel bindings and pitched forward and I actually thought I was going to do a somersault in the air and land on my back but I didn't quite make it uh, as it happens I pile drive head first into the ground oh that's uh, never good and at the time I weighed about say again I said that's never no. good <laughs> no no <laughs> yeah uh, and um, I, my whole body just uh, basically collapsed in behind the impact um, I felt what uh it felt like a bomb go off in my body. Um, if anyone's ever had a concussion, there's a, a feeling of um, almost like a gong or like this, you know, explosive resonance. And um, that took place throughout my whole body. Uh, at the same time, my entire screen, as I call it, went white. I mean, there was a moment when there was just nothing, just a moment of nothingness in this experience. 
and um, I had a vague uh, impression of tumbling through space, and then I landed face down on the hill, um, sort of spread eagle, pointing up the hill, you know, so that my eyes were pointing up the mountain. And um, I, I was lying there. Um, I felt like I hadn't been going all that fast, and that, um, you know, and other than this explosion that went off in my body, it seemed to me like it had been a fairly innocuous fall, so I went to get up, and I quickly realized um, that I could not move uh, from the neck down. Um, I could not feel anything from the neck down, and um, I wasn't breathing. Uh, all of those were pretty bad signs given my training. Yeah. It's uh, a very bad I, combination I, of th things there, especially the yeah. last one, the not, and the not breathing part. <laughs> Right, and I knew, you know, just from my training, I mean, I put my finger on it right away. I, I knew that I'd sustained a spinal cord injury, and it had to be in my neck because I couldn't move anything uh, from the neck down, as I said. Um, and up there in the cervical spine region, C3, C4, C5, we have an expression on, on ski patrol, C3, 4, 5, lucky to be alive. Um, because that's the area where uh, there's the phrenic nerve which controls your ability to breathe uh, automatically uh, and obviously I had traumatized mine to the point where I wasn't breathing. Um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I assumed that this was it and um, I just sort of was facing up the hill and I looked up the hill and um, I saw my dad standing there. Um, this was kind of unusual given the fact that my dad had been dead for seven years. Uh, and he looked just as he always did. I mean, it wasn't ethereal or ghostly or, you know, woo-woo, anything like that. It was just my dad standing there. He was wearing his old brown pants and yellow windbreaker and looked like he'd just come out for a walk. And um, I assumed that he was there to escort me to the other side. <laughs> Um, and the words somehow came out of my mouth. Uh, I don't know if I spoke them or mouthed them or whatever, but the words came out, what do I do now? And he looks at me and says, just breathe. Uh, great advice. Um, I looked down, and I noticed at that point that my uh, chest was beginning to rise and fall on its own, and I was starting to breathe again, and I took that as a really good sign. Uh, I looked up to say thanks to my dad, and he was gone. Um, so now I'm lying there on the snow. I can't key my radio for help, but uh, somebody somewhere, one of our other patrollers, was uh, riding a chairlift above where I was and uh, got the call out that, you know, one of our guys was down, and I started to hear the activity of, um, you know, people getting ready to come to my rescue. Um, the first guys uh, that showed up, uh, I knew very well. I obviously, you know, I know everybody there. We have uh, oh, 150 or so patrollers connected with our hill. Um, and the first couple of guys that showed up started, you know, the usual round of questions like, uh, you know, do you know where you are? Do you know, you know who the president is? What day of the week it is? What time it is? That kind of stuff. And I said, listen, guys, I know the answers to all, that, to all those questions. I said, um, I think I've broken my neck. I think I've severed my spinal cord. Um, I can't move or feel anything from the neck down, and we're into some very bad bleep here. Um, and um, I looked at their faces, and they 
you know, communicated to me that this was, you know, the worst imaginable scenario. Um, so now, um, you know, the call goes out. More more people are starting to show up on scene, and within a very short time, there's a scene. There's a, a staff of six patrollers working uh, working my incident. Um, I know every one of these guys, and um, uh, interestingly enough, um, all six of these guys were devout Christian men. Uh, my own faith is very eclectic. I tend not to identify as a member of any given church, uh, although at one point or another in my life I've identified as a member of virtually every given church. Okay. Um, but, uh, sorry? No, I said, okay, that's, that's a lot of people are like that, actually. Uh, well, as I said, I mean, I've always had a, a deep faith and a deep spiritual connection, but I've never felt that my relationship with God, with God was um, confined to within the walls of a building. Um, and my my faith and spiritual connection comes from my own direct experience, and you know, not from anything that's been hammered into me, so to speak. Um, I grew up in in a metaphysical tradition, and um, that's, so that's been sort of the mainstay of my experience throughout my life. Um, so here I am. I'm lying on the hill, and uh, these guys are surrounding me. One of them, um, uh, Eddie, is a uh, Christian minister with uh, you know congregation in Southern California, and uh, three of the other guys were uh, deacons in his church. Um, these uh, and the other two guys were just devout Christian men. There were a couple of paramedics among them. I had the best possible medical team or rescue team that could have been there. Um, and these guys went into the drill, and, you know, it's backboard, sea collar, oxygen, all of that, and, you know, they're getting ready to package me up as freight and call on the paramedics to come and, and pick me up. And um, So we reached the point in the scenario where um, they're going to roll me over onto my back on the backboard. And so they get the backboard position and start to roll me over on my back. As soon as I roll over on my back, um, literally, the clouds above us parted, and um, a very bright diagonal shaft of light uh, hit us on the scene. Um, and uh, Eddie was at my head, and he's got—he's holding my head, and the other guys um, uh, are all around me. Um, and I'm lying there on, on the backboard on my back, and they're getting ready to secure me to the backboard. But before they do that, these guys did something that is not in our patrol manuals anywhere, because I know I've gone back and checked several editions, and it's not there. Um, they put their hands on me, and they prayed. Hmm. And they prayed that uh, God would be with us at the scene, and that uh, I would be healed, and that my healing would forever be a demonstration of God's love, compassion, and will for me in my life and in this world, and that I would forever be a witness to that. Um, as they were praying, um, I had the experience of all of my fear leaving me. Um, I felt that that something extraordinary was happening here, and that whatever it was, it was something much larger than I was, and that whatever it was, um, I was only playing a part, and whatever that part was, I was willing to play. Uh, and so I just had this experience of what I call divine grace. Um, I, was, I, I felt completely calm, completely at peace, completely secure in the knowledge that something extraordinary was happening here. 
and um, and as I said, that whatever my part in it was, I was willing to play. Um, at that point, uh, it was time to secure my hands across my chest for the ride down the hill, and uh, they took my right hand and, and put it across my chest, and when my hand made contact with my chest, I said, I feel that. Um, not just like I felt it just now when I did it, but as though you know it was through a pillow or a mattress or something, very, very distant, but still there. Uh, same thing with my left hand. I brought in my left hand, same same experience. Uh, I, I feel that. I said, do me a favor, guys, knock on my boots, will you? They knocked on my boots. I was able to correctly identify left and right. Um, so we, had, we went from no sensation prior to this prayer um, to sensation beginning to return immediately afterwards. Uh, anyway, long story short, they did everything they needed to do to get me off the hill and, and got me down to the ambulance. And, and by the time I was in the ambulance, I was already beginning to regain um, sort of gross movement. I mean, nothing that I could you know, sort of use effectively, but I was able to get little twitches in the large muscles of my legs and things like that. And and um, and so sensation and movement were beginning to return spontaneously um, following this laying on of hands. Um, I spent the next seven hours uh, at the community hospital because they wanted to fly me out, but they couldn't get a chopper up the canyon because of the of the weather. Uh, so they did all the initial testing and all the initial first aid at the at the hospital up there in the mountains and. And the resident, or not the resident, but the, the attending physician at, at the ER came and, you know, had looked at my test and looked at my MRI and all of that and um, said, we don't know. You know, she, he said, this could go either way. Um, you know, a lot of your recovery depends on your early recovery, um, but it's just still too early. To, and there's a possibility um, that you might never walk again. Um, and I kind of looked at him, and I, I chuckled a bit, and I said, you know, Doc, you, you have no idea who you're dealing with. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm confident. I, I'm confident that something truly extraordinary is happening here, um, and I know I'm going to be all right. And I, I really didn't have a context for what that meant, but um, I just had that sense that um, that this that that this was truly um, an awakening, that this was truly a miracle, and that, that I was going to be all right. Um, so they got me off the hill, and they took me down to one of the major trauma centers in Southern California, which is Loma Linda, and uh, it's where we send all our hardcore cases, uh, of which I was now one. And um, I was in the critical care unit at Loma Linda, and my roommates were, you know, gang members and gunshot victims, and, you know, we all got to be great friends. And, and I told them my story, and, and I saw, you know, immediately, even with these tough guys that were my roommates, um, that it had an effect, that it meant something, that in some way it connected, with their, connected them with their own faith and connected them with their own um, potential for healing and recovery. And uh, now what I call the parade began. And this is my family and my friends and, and um, you know, this steady stream of visitors um, that came to see me during my first, first week at Loma Linda. And one after the other, I'd see them come into the room with these looks of just horror and trepidation. Oh, my God, what's happened to Doug? And, and oh, it's the most terrible thing imaginable and all of that. And they'd come in and I'd hang out with them and I'd tell them the story of what happened on the hill. 
and I saw the same thing. I mean that it it connected them in some way, and um, and they all, you know, I I sort of watched the transformation take place. That uh, just by connecting with this story and hearing the story and 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 sensing my own connection to it. Uh, that they came away with with the same feeling that that this was something extraordinary. This was something out of the box. Uh, and so they'd come in looking, you know, horrified and fearful, and they'd leave uh, laughing and scratching and uh, and knowing that I was going to be okay. Um, after about a week, um, the uh, chief of neurosurgery and fifteen of his residents uh, came and surrounded my bed. Uh, I was the um, I was the test case for the day, and um, they wanted to sell me a three level spinal fusion. They wanted to to fuse C three, C four, and C five uh, surgically. And um, I looked at them and I said, "Guys, if you know if our positions were reversed, I'd be making the same recommendation. You know, and I know that medically you're you're making the right call here." I said, "But again." something extraordinary is happening here and I just want to see how my uh, my recovery goes before I make uh, you know a decision to do something quite that invasive and you know they all thanked me they thought I was crazy uh, which you know I didn't discount as a possibility um, but um, within 12 hours of my saying no to a three-level spinal fusion they were there with uh, discharge papers and a list of hospitals saying where do you want to go that's amazing. Um, I literally did the thing where I spun my finger over the paper and, you know, poked the page somewhere. And uh, what came up was uh, Daniel Freeman Memorial Hospital in Inglewood. Um, so they packed me up into an ambulance and sent me off to Daniel Freeman. Uh, I had no idea at the time that Daniel Freeman had what was recognized, I believe, as the second uh, most important spinal care unit in North America. I think at the time it was second only to Johns Hopkins. Um, another example of just something that went right, uh, because for me it was completely random. I mean, I literally just poked my finger on the page and said, I want to go here. Inglewood, we should tell people, is um, just a little subsection of Los Angeles. It's here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's in L.A. Uh, actually, that particular facility has closed down since then. Uh, they opened another, you know, much more modern and, you know, fancy facility uh, uh, down the street a little ways from where this hospital was. But this was one of the older hospitals in town, and it was run by uh, an order of Catholic nuns, uh, the uh, Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet. And uh, as I, you know, began to acclimate myself to my new uh, temporary home, the sisters would come and see me. Uh, one of them, particularly Sister Dolores, got to be my great friend. And, um, you know, I wasn't a Catholic, and, I, you know, I wasn't really interested in the material that they wanted to give me, but um, I was very interested and attuned to the the atmosphere of, um, of grace and service and and love um, that was present and uh, and so I really tuned in on that and, and connected with that and I began to um, meditate and pray a lot I'd spend a lot of time in, in the chapel and just sort of you know working through this and and really from a standpoint of gratitude um, you know that I, I mean I was I, here I was and I was having the opportunity to really 
rebuild myself and start you know start over again and and recreate myself in a whole new way and that how did they do it Doug? they have you in a wheelchair to move you around well initially yeah I'm initially um, I, I could barely um, you know my upper body was barely functional although yeah they got me into a wheelchair pretty soon and started me doing rehab pretty soon and within uh, within a few days I was actually able to push myself around in the chair uh, little side note on that is I think I'm kind of a window to my personality is that I had a chair which um, which didn't work the same on the left side on the right side uh, on the, the left side was much harder to push than the right side but I got so that I would you know push the wheelchair around in the halls just as much as I can just because I could and I was so uh, intent on doing that that I actually blew out one of my lat muscles on the left side because I was working so hard and pushing so hard and and that was a, you know, that was that, that was a pain like I recognized. I mean, it was almost like a sports injury. And I'm going, yes, all right, here's something I can really get my, uh, you know, get my teeth into. I just, you know, I blew out my lat. This I understand. And plus, you can uh, feel it, which is even more amazing. Exactly. It's like, yes, oh my God, I can feel pain. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so um, anyway, so uh, I got in the habit of what I called making rounds. Um, the um, the spinal uh, unit and the stroke unit were uh, side by side, and I just I got in the habit of going around and, and visiting the patients um, and relating with them from the standpoint of this miracle that was taking place in my life and telling my story, and I told it you know over and over again and continue to have the experience of um, of seeing people's lights come on and seeing um, their hearts open and you know seeing their own faith um, uh, rekindled and um, and just you know a truly extraordinary humbling uh, beautiful humanizing experience um, and my own recovery was progressing at a at a mind-boggling rate I mean within you know within days I'm you know, I'm I'm up. You know, working in the parallel bars, and you know, able to use a walker, and then progressing to a cane. And I, you know, I, I was at at um, at Daniel Freeman's for about a month. Um, and again, you know, just my recovery is is progressing at an astonishing rate. Um, and so, and I began to make friends. Um, obviously, you know, going around and talking to people and just relating with people. Um, you know, I became very close very quickly with uh, with a lot of the people around there and um, so uh, one of those people uh, was a 300 pound uh, black Baptist woman named Pat and she was just this wonderful earth mother you know just great loving energy and you know I told her my story uh, one night when I first met her and she threw her arms around me and just you know prayed eloquently for me and held me and you know got me a little cross and put it around my neck and just really really took care of me and and uh showered me with with love and and faith and uh it was truly extraordinary um and then uh another friend that uh i met there uh was named macy uh macy was in her 80s she's about oh, i would say she was 85 at the time uh also a black woman and Macy was at the point where um, she was about to be flushed out of the program. Uh, she 
was not she couldn't walk uh, she was not participating in her therapy she had bed sores she was keeping the nurses up all night and um, and they were just at the point where you know well if you're not you know if you can't participate in your therapy you're, you don't get to stay in the program and they were just at the point where they were ready to um, send her off to a facility you know one of those places we refer to as God's waiting room Hmm. Um, and um, so I had gone in one day, you know, one night to see Macy, and um, you know, just it's interesting because her room was a double room, but the front of the room was unoccupied, and the front of the room was dark, and all you would see when you'd pass by Macy's room was this little pool of light from the bedside lamp in the back of the room where her bed was, um, and um, you know, this little you know, kind of dark presence back there. And, you know, there's a feeling coming out of the place that, you know, this is someplace you just don't want to go. So, of course, I tuned in on that and quickly uh, turned my little wheelchair in there and pulled up on the side of Macy's bed, and and we started talking. And I told her my story, and she told told me hers. And we basically told each other our whole lives in, you know, a couple hours. And... Uh, got to be great friends, uh, and she was so grateful and so soulful and so sweet, and uh, you know that anybody would care enough to want to come in and, and talk to her, and, and we just bonded beautifully immediately in, in this way. And, um, so anyway, f- fast forward a few days, um, I'm out in the garden. They had a beautiful garden outside the hospital with these giant banyan trees those you know huge fig trees from uh, australia and um and i would go out there and i'd sit in my wheelchair and um meditate and and talk to god and uh so i was out there and and my friend vicky came to see me um vicky is one of my oldest friends uh i've known her since i was so about 18 years old and Vicky had been married to another friend of mine named Michael, uh, who, who I'd also known for that same length of time. Uh, Michael had died five years earlier from melanoma. Uh, the last year together, as the disease took him out, um, was just horrifying. Um, you know, there, I mean, there was just so much uh, uncontrolled pain, anguish, misery, rage, um, that expressed itself during the final year of their lives together. Um, and they'd by his side uh, until the day he died and, and beyond. Um, and, uh, but the, the last year together had been uh, extremely painful and extremely difficult. And, you know, I, I was witness to a lot of that. Um, anyway, we're out in the garden again, and I'm sitting there with Vicki. And... Um, I was telling her the story of the six guys on the hill that had laid their hands on me. And I said, um, Vicki, one thing I know for sure is that there are angels in this world, and some of them wear red jackets with white crosses on the back. Uh, and I said, I now know that there are six angels that I can name. And, uh, you know, she's got tears running down her face, and I've got tears running down my face. and. And uh, suddenly I had the feeling that someone else had joined us and someone else had joined the conversation. And I looked at Vicky and I said, and there's one more angel, Vicky, and it's Michael, and he's here. Um, for the next, 
a half hour or so, um, I had the experience of facilitating a conversation between Michael and Vicky. Um, the words are not important. Uh, what is important was that they both had an experience of completion. They both had an experience of forgiveness. Um, they both had an experience of being able to say, I love you one more time. Um, at the end of which, uh, Michael went on his way and, and Vicki and I, um, you know, hugged and parted company. Uh, and I went back up to my room. Uh, later that night, just as I was getting ready to go to bed, um, Michael came to visit me one more time. It was not, not like, a, uh, that I saw him physically, but the same sense of the presence that had been in the garden, uh, was present again in my room. And he told me something, and he told me something that was very, very specific. Um, so specific, in fact, that, uh, I didn't want to tell it to Vicki. Uh, because I figured it, you know, maybe I was just crazy again, and um, uh, it might diminish the power of what had happened in the garden, and I didn't want to do that. So I sat with it all day, and all night, uh, all day the next day, and into the night until the last phone call before I was ready to go to bed uh, the following day. And I called Vicky, and I said, "Listen, Vicky, uh, I need to tell you that Michael came to see me again last night, and he wanted me to tell you something." Um, he told me that he wants you to reread the letter that he wrote to you uh, when, the, when the two of you first found out that he was terminal, the one that you keep in the box under the bed. Um, she lost it on the phone. Uh, she said, oh, my God, I know exactly the letter that you're talking about. Um, I do keep it in a box under the bed, uh, facts I hadn't known until Michael told them to me, uh, and she said, I have not been able to read that letter for years, but when I got home last night after seeing you and after what happened in the garden, I pulled that letter out and read it again for the very first time. Um, so to my mind, this was the universe saying, uh, just in case you think any of this is a coincidence, pay attention. That's just truly amazing. Um, That's an amazing story. Uh, yeah, it it, um, it it truly awakened me at that point, and uh, and so the next day I, I was back out in the garden again, and you know doing my thing, uh, meditating and praying and listening, and and I said, now if it's possible for a group of guys to show up on a mountain and put their hands on me uh, and pray and transmit this type of healing energy to me. Why couldn't I do that for someone else? Uh, at which point the voice in the garden said, what makes you think you can't? Wow. And I went, oh, just like that, oh. <laughs> and um, I spun around in my chair, uh, went back upstairs, you know, rode the elevator back up to our little unit. First person I saw getting off the elevator was Pat. And Pat rode around on one of those little uh, rascal scooter things, you know. Uh, she, she was... Uh, didn't walk so well herself uh but i said uh pat come on i need a witness and so we both uh you know scurried along in our little rolling units and went into uh, macy's room and pulled up on either side of macy's bed and i said macy i've been out in the garden again i told her about the garden i said i've been out in the garden again uh 
and God told me that he was going to allow me to heal others by putting my hands on them. Um, she just looked at me, and, you know, I'll never forget this look of soul in her eyes when she said, Oh, would you put your hands on me, please? And I said, Well, that's kind of what we're here for. And, you know, this was this was my first time, so I didn't have any technique. I, I didn't really know what I was doing, except that I knew that I was being called forward to serve in this way, um, and that I had had an experience that it was possible. And... Um, and so uh, before I know it, we're like, you know, she's got a whole list of things uh, she wants me to pray for. She can't walk. She's got bed, bed sores and, you know, all of that. I mean, she's got a whole litany of things that she, she wants me to pray for. And before I know it, we're like rolling up her nightgown. I'm going to put my hands on her. And I said, you know, let's not roll that up too far, Macy. You don't want to put my hands on too much. And <laughs> she cracks up, and I crack up, and Pat cracks up, and uh, we go to work. And and literally, I just put my hands on her, and Pat put her hands on her, and um, I start praying just as the guys on the mountain had prayed for me, that uh, Macy would be healed, and that this healing would forever be a demonstration of God's love, compassion, and will for her in her life and in this world, and that she'd forever be a witness to that. And uh, and Pat was something of a professional prayer, uh, and she was praying as only... Uh, um, you know, a classically trained three uh, hundred pound black Baptist woman could possibly uh, uh, pray, and and it was just magical. It was just musical. It was so powerful and moving. The energy in the room, and uh, this went on for um, I don't know half an hour or so. You know, like just like the session in the garden, it always seems to be about a half an hour or so. Um, and at the end of the session, uh, it was over, and it was clearly over. I mean, it was almost as though someone had flipped a switch. And um, I looked at them, and I said, ladies, that's it. I'm done. I was totally exhausted. It's, it's been great, but uh, i got to go to bed. And so I wheeled out of there, went back to my room, climbed into my bed, and, um, and went to sleep straight away. Um, woke up the next morning, about 8 o'clock in the morning, went to physical therapy, spent about a half an hour in there, and come back out into the hall, and uh, there's Pat sitting there on her little cart. She just finished her uh, physical therapy, and we wheeled up together, and we're just talking about what happened last night, you know, wasn't that amazing, you know, did you have you heard anything, have you seen it, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, as we're having this little chit-chat, um, we hear this high-pitched voice from down the hall say, There he is! And we both turn, and here comes Macy walking down the hall with her physical therapist, uh, who is just astonished. I mean, it's like going, oh my you know, <laughs> what happened? What did you say? What did you do? What happened? She says, There he is! The power of Christ done come through Doug, and I can walk again today. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. That wow um, is all I can so, think of. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's kind of what I said. It, this is this is the news part to me. I didn't know this part of the story. I just knew Doug's healing. I didn't know. And I also know that Doug is now putting out his shingle for the first time as a healer. Uh, and that's been a little progression where he's actually been working on people in my house without, you know, shingle, so to speak, but without a <laughs> Whatever, but now because he's had so much success with this, 
so I but I didn't know those stories. Yeah, well, I I, I think you might have, but you know, sometimes uh, you know, I mean, you were focused on on my end of it, and yeah. but that 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 was really the moment when um, I realized that this this was not something that was only for me. I mean, that you know that that I could only receive this kind of healing, but that I had um, maybe a gift or a connection to to facilitate or transmit it as well. Doug, is that would be the best feeling. Is that in that story that I put on my blog, Miracle on the Mountain, the healing things that you went on to do, is that in the story? Yeah, that part of it is. Is it? Oh, well, um, i got to read it again. Yeah. See, all I remember is you and the astonishing thing of you uh, having that accident and watching you as this super ac- uber a- athlete. <laughs> <laughs> knocks me out. Um, so, uh, really, I mean, the, the ribbon on that part of the story is that um, on the on the same day that I left the hospital to go home, uh, Macy also left the hospital to go home. Um, at that point, I was aware that uh, this was something that I needed to pursue and follow uh, as a central focus in my life. and. So that, that truly must have been with. an amazing feeling to actually see her do that and, and move after. I mean, uh, my gosh, I don't even know how you'd react to that. It, it changed my life forever. <laughs> yeah, it would have to, because that's, yeah. a, that's a miracle. Um, There's no other way to put it. In the wake of that, I began to study. Um, I, I began to learn and, and work with um, masters and teachers, um, particularly... Uh, in, in the form of uh, Qigong, the, um, the ancient uh, Chinese um, system of healing, um, and um, had just profound effects uh, from that work in my own recovery, uh, and began to study it as, um, uh, as an applied healing modality that, that I could actually use. Uh, and so in my own work now, I, I use a combination of, um, uh, first of all, I'm very clear that Spirit is the one doing the work. Um, I just show up for the meeting, and um, uh, and you know, in some ways, it's it's unquantifiable. I mean, I've seen some extraordinary uh, some extraordinary results, both in my own life and in the lives of um, a number of the people that I've worked with over the years. Um, but for a decade, um, it became uh, just a personal search and. Um, personal uh, development along these lines where now you know on on the day that I worked with Macy I had I had no technique and no experience now I actually do have some of both um, and then in the last year I um, as I put it came out of the closet and I started working with um, with a lot of people um, and I've done now uh, hundreds of these sessions um, and uh, just in the last year, um, I, I've really, really realized that um, this is my direction. This is my calling. This is um, this is who I am. This is a rep- representation of my authentic self uh, in the world. Uh, I believe it was Teilhard de Chardin who said, um, "We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience." Um, and so, from my point of view, this. Um, this ability to uh, work with these energies that have been present on our on our planet since the beginning, and that have formed the basis of um, um, therapeutic treatments for thousands and thousands of years, are really a form of our um, our birthright as spiritual beings. I do not see that this is something which is specific to me. 
I believe that this is something which is available to all of us equally, and that in many ways, um, you know, by virtue of our conditioning or what we've learned or what the medical establishment or pharmaceutical companies or whatever have pounded into us, we've simply forgotten. Um, but it is easy and natural uh, to reawaken these abilities, these gifts in all of our lives. This isn't and the first so time I've heard something like this either. I, I've heard other stories where people have had near-death experiences or a traumatic experience, and all of a sudden they have the same kind of thing you do. Right. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, and I respond to that by saying that, you know, if I'd been um, on February 12, 2000, if, you know, God had tapped me on the shoulder before uh, before the fall, and said, okay, I'm going to give you a choice here. Um, you're going to have, you can either have an experience that will, you know, paralyze you from the neck down, but will, um, you know, awaken you to a whole new mode of life that will become the central focus of your life, or you can have a nice ski day. <laughs> I would have, hands down, on that day, chosen the nice ski day. <laughs> yeah, what have we all? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, once once this happened and once this awakening began to occur, um, my experience is one of just deep gratitude, um, a sense of having, you know, I would not have been able to get this message um, if I had not been stopped cold on that day and had the experience of spirit saying to me, um, I'm talking to you now, pay attention. And so to anyone who's listening, I say the same thing. I'm talking to you. Pay attention. Well, you know, actually hearing you just... Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, actually just hearing this actually makes makes you feel better. I can actually feel like a warmth just by listening to this story, as odd as that may sound. No, no, I was thinking, look at how odd I get ch chills through some of the, you know, and he's like, he, like, <laughs> like, really, you know, it's like the vibration of what's happening uh, just... Uh, radiates out and uh, has a, had a visceral effect on me. I thought, oh, hello. Right. Well, you don't have to kill for it, Suzanne. You just have to let me stay at your house now and then. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, am I lucky? Really? Am I lucky you don't live in L.A.? So <laughs> I, have, I have this opportunity, and, uh, and I do see the happy people come in and out or the people who leave happier than when they came of the times that you've done sessions here at my house. Yeah, and that's, and that's truly my experience as well. Um, one of the things that's truly beautiful about it for me, as I said, this is, this is not something that I do to people. This is something in which we both participate. And uh, every time I put my hands on someone or every time um, I do a session, um, I also do them by remote or by phone, I'm, I'm getting it too. Uh, and the experience that I have when I work with people is, you know, they'll come in with their stuff or, you know, their pain or their problem or, you know, uh, an, an emotional issue. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of levels of experience that go into this, uh, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, psychological, familial, karmic, relationships. I mean, there, there, there's all kinds of levels on which trauma or illness manifests. In fact, usually the physical issue um, is the last manifestation. It's like the tip of the iceberg. Um, the the deeper underlying issues um, are what's below the surface, and that's where this this work goes. This work goes this work goes to the unconscious. And so my uh, my experience, time and time again, uh, is being able to witness 
transformation occurring right before my eyes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'll see people come in in turmoil, and I'll watch them leave in peace. Yeah, I've seen that, you know. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, and, and so it's, it, it's, truly, it's truly a privilege. It's truly an honor. Um, it's nothing I claim credit for. Um, it just is. And um, I, I feel delighted, honored, and privileged to be a part of it. Well, you know, it's no wonder that people uh, are, um, you, virtually everyone has material, because we're living in this crazy world that uh, is certainly not tuned in to the awareness that hopefully we'll get to eventually in this evolutionary process, and everyone uh, struggles at, at some level because we don't have this great attunement to uh, the beauty and the love and the, uh, the 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 oneness of you know this this bigger space, uh, we're all just struggling to survive and one way or another. So that virtually everyone uh, has material that uh, is uh, presents itself to be worked with and worked on. Uh, if we can ever get to the prevailing understanding of this larger space, you know, <laughs> healers wouldn't have so much to do. We would all be, <laughs> you know, grow, we would be growing up in a much more whole kind of way. But for now, uh, you know, it's so wonderful that there is um, the opportunity to, to to work with people who really have had some kind of breakthrough experience or the capacity to connect with this with this larger space yep and it all becomes kind of testimony to the fact that there is that space and that that is the goal of this uh, human evolution that we're in to have us all of us become more resonant with uh, the the vibration of what's beyond the ordinary reality outside the box Amen. Uh, and the key word that you used for me and all of that was love. Um, when people ask me, you know, to, to just sort of bottom line it, what is it, you, you know, what is it that healed you? Uh, the answer for me invariably is love. Oh, and um, uh, and that is the energy, that is, that is the essence of the energy that I work with when I'm doing this work. Hey, John, uh, I want to know if we still have John. Yeah, I'm. St I'm just actually. I, I thought, I'm just amazed by this. No, I'm just. Well, you, you actually are. I haven't even wanted to say anything or interject because it's just it's absolutely an amazing story. I can I can feel it as you talk. Almost, it's hard to explain. Well, I like you know as I'm going to be doing this episode. Uh, it's wonderful to really have firsthand knowledge. Well, I say firsthand. It's not my experience, but it's my good friend's experience, and you know I'm connected up with him so that I know that the kind of things who I'll be bringing on here uh, are for real. They're not just some kind of wild story that, you know, you heard third or fourth hand from somebody. What so, that's true uh, hearing this story from you would be a good story, but actually having Doug say it is just, you know, like I say, it's easy. Right. You know, in my movie, um, so much that happens in the crop circles that sound ridiculous. How can that be? And... Um, those stories kind of float around, but I made sure that when I made the movie that I only talked to the people I actually knew, like Doug, not like somebody who told me about somebody else. You know what I mean? Right. 
Oh, so correct, everyone right. Everyone that you're seeing now, the people who see the movie have to take it that I know these people, and, you know, it's not them that knows them, but at least I... Because there were certain things that were just so beyond the beyond. I thought, can I put this in this movie? Well, it's real. It's what happens in this crop circle world uh, where people uh, meditate on a shape and the next day there it is in the field. What? How can that be? You know, so there are various stories in the movie like that, but they're all my friends to whom these things happen. So I feel like I'm certain uh, that I'm not bringing snake oil, you know, to the table. Um, yeah, that's so actually an expression gone. I use too. <laughs> I, I constantly mm. say that about the snakes, snake oil stuff. Well, there's a lot of that in this paranormal world, you know. And uh, you better not just be a, a gullible sucker, including the crop circle world. In fact, it bothers me a little bit. There's so much hoaxing that goes on, which is just a, a distraction. I mean, the truth is, you have a real phenomenon. You can't explain it. That's what's important. And the hoaxing just brings it over into this argument and this contentiousness and whatever. But nonetheless, um, there's also some lack of discrimination in the crop circle researcher world, you might say, or, or reporter world. The people who are really interested in the circles, um, they, they, they are not discerning about um, which... What, what, that, that, I said, you know, on, on all this paranormal stuff, there's a lot of sink oil. Well, the hoaxers are kind of like snake oil, and um, so it's somewhat frustrating that people uh, who are speaking about crop circles and going on to make evaluations of them and, and analyses of them are, are not discriminating. Uh, many of them are not discriminating about the fact that some of it is snake oil, you know. That's but true. then again, the fact that some of it is snake oil makes the serious, more serious people much more attentive to being sure that what they're dealing with is it's not easy you've got to really do a little work and a little um, investigation and 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 you know thread your way through but it makes you really more like me uh it wasn't handed to me on a silver platter i had to be very discerning and whatever to really know that there really is something going on and you know, uh, it's like no free lunch. I had to really work for my own, my own awareness, and then I really have it. You know, I have, I'm not just floating around in some third-hand kind of uh, woo-woo space, but, you know, I'm grounded and dealing in what I really know to be true, and I've had to work for it. Uh, it's a little bit like, why don't they land on the White House lawn? No, 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 it's not about being hit over the head with this other reality. It's about really peering into it and having discrimination so that when you really realize that something's going on, you own that. You've become the person who is bigger and wiser and broader, uh, you know, for, for, for having incorporated this awareness. And it's a much stronger position in which to uh, communicate, in which to un have your own powerful sense of knowing, you know. Uh, so I think, in a way, the, 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 they don't land on, you know, that UFOs they talk about not landing on the White House lawn. But by the same token, you could have a lovely little crop circle. Grass is one of their favorite worldwide. They land in a lot of grass. <laughs> like, they could do a crop squeezy, circle on you know? the White and the White House lawn. They'll do a nice crop circle out there for you. I mean, they could, but it would be invasive. You know, it would not be. It would not be us tuning in to the phenomenon so that it becomes part of us. It would be us being hit over the head with it, which is not, you know, the conscious way to evolve by being exactly hit over the head. 
So. Well, also the way I look at it is they want to communicate with mankind. I mean, the White House is irrelevant. We're all we're all people. So, you know, they don't have to go to the White House. They could do it in my front yard, in your front yard. It, it makes no difference well, to them because we're all earthlings. Right. Well, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. They, they, they do. They are landing all over 50 countries now. Right. Wow. But not, but not in an invasive way, in a kind of a delightful, inviting way, which feels like a much more enlightened way. Since they're ahead of us, they're visiting us. We're not visiting them. They seem yeah. to be more enlightened than we are. And uh, they are not, you know, giving us a kind of a confrontive way to here we are, you know, they're giving us a evidence, 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 oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, and that's a much more um, gentle kind of conscious way to uh, experience the world and come to new understandings. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Tell you, this has so, been an amazing okay, talk. John, How are you going to okay. be able to outdo this one next week? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> you think I've, you spoiled us, Doug. <laughs> but, but, but it is. That's what I do best. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a snoop for this kind of stuff. That's why I have this as a blog post, you know. Uh, I just love these stories because they do tune us into the world being more than this difficult one that we are so imploded in now. That, And I could hardly, we could hardly have, however, a, a conversation about the next reality without giving a heads up to this wonderful Occupy Wall Street that's happening all over the world. Mm. I mean, that's another way that we're going to really be uh, wrenched loose from this tiny little terrible, you know, uh, violent world we're in to really pay attention to the fact that we're one humanity. So I just love this movement. Hello. It's spreading quite quickly, too. Really, and I have suggested, I, the last, uh, if you get on my mailing list, which you can get on from the links that you're going to give on uh, your website, and CropCircleMovie.com, because some people won't get on the website. I want them to go there, and you can get on my mailing list from there, actually. But the last mailing that I sent out, I um, reproduced something that I posted in one of, a very profound conversation going on about Occupy Wall Street. And I made a post uh, in, in, as a comment to it. And what I said in that post was, boy, what a great time for the crop circle phenomenon to be acknowledged. If you know, We keep moving toward that, hoping that we'll get enough attention uh, by the powers that be that we'll see that the evidence is in that we're being visited. Because if we could, because this movement uh, is evolving, it's got its own energy, it's wonderful. And at the same time, it's like, oh, how is it going to uh, be focused enough to actually get things to move? Well, if the crop circle phenomenon were acknowledged at this point, you have Occupy Wall Street with all this energy out there, and then if we had a common focus of, oh, my gosh, we're being visited, I mean, what a combo of energy that would be to get uh, us through to the next level of understanding. Now, it's a pipe dream in a way. It's like, wow, that would be, wouldn't that be just beyond the beyond to have happen? But, you know, I'm, the, I'm your crop circle girl, so I'm willing to kind of uh, entertain that dream. And uh, maybe I'll get some healers to come in here and dream it. <laughs> you. Right. you get Doug involved. Doug could do anything, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Hey, Doug, <laughs> come on. We'll have to get off the phone. We'll work on this. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was Susanna Taylor with Doug in her segment, Outside the Box. 
We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. With the month of October and Halloween fast approaching, we want you, the listener, to share your creepy stories with us. Call us, email us, text us your personal story, your local legends, and folklore. Every week in October, we'll read your story on air. You can even read it yourself if you're not afraid. Call or text us at 708-966-9UFO. 708-966-9836 or email John directly at ghost1 at bachelors-grove.com Thank you and we look forward to your stories. Welcome back to Thresholds in Other Realms, and we have Michael Clean on the phone, live from a coffee shop in Champaign. How you doing, Mike? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's great to talk to you, as always. Uh, this is a very exciting time, and uh, I hope that there isn't too much background noise, but I'm on a tour right now, so it's kind of hard to find a quiet place to talk. Yeah, it's actually on this end. You're quiet. Oh, good. So uh, what is going on with you? You're on a tour? What, I've, there's all kinds of things happening with you right now, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in the midst of my, what I'm calling the Heartland is Haunted Tour, book tour for my book, Haunting Illinois, A Tourist Guide to the Weird and Wild Places of the Prairie State. I've been to a couple of stops uh, in the tour so far. Tonight, I've got events in Champaign and Urbana, uh, kind of back-to-back with each other. I'll be at Beads and Botanicals in Urbana, and then I'm going to the, to the Barnes & Noble in Champaign. So it's been real great. Uh, last weekend, I started it off as a, a book signing in Charleston, Illinois, and then I did a, a haunted tour. They actually, um, the lady who helped organize it, she got a bus and everything. It was packed, and we had cars following behind the bus. They said that oh, there were more than that's uh, cool. 75 people there. Yeah, it was really uh, successful. And then Wednesday, I was in Springfield, at uh, speaking at a class at Lincoln Land College. And last night I was at the uh, Camargo Township Library in Villa Grove, Illinois. Are you doing uh, the library circuit now, huh? The, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I like, you know, libraries are almost better than bookstores in a certain way. Because right. They really bring in people from the community. And we had a lot of kids from the local high school there. Uh, their, their teachers gave them extra credit for coming. 
they've all seen the Ghost Adventures episode from Ashes, and it, so they were all real curious about it, and they wanted to know what it was like, you know, to be on the show and everything. Yeah, they wanted to meet a real celebrity like Michael Clean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm quickly turning into one. My uh, signature event at the end of the tour on Saturday night, it's going to be great. I'm going to be at Peck Cemetery uh, outside of Oakley that's near Decatur, Illinois. Uh-huh. And for your listeners who don't know, like, Peck Cemetery is kind of like the Bachelor's Grove of Central Illinois. It's not mm. as run down, but there were all kinds of weird stories about it, and it's a place where people went in the 70s and 80s, you know, and snuck in there, and there's all kinds of vandalisms. People said there was, like, a devil chair in the cemetery, and if you sat in it, uh, you would be cursed and die. Well, yeah, I've actually heard that. Yeah, nothing yeah, worse than the devil's here. I mean, right. Well, it's not, it's not just at that particular cemetery. There's a bunch of them around, different uh, cemeteries. So it's been going great. I'm selling uh, Heartland is Haunted t-shirts. I've almost sold out of my books. I'm afraid I'm not going to have any <laughs> for the, the Peck Cemetery thing tomorrow. You're going to have to start taking more than five books with you when you do this stuff, though. I know. I really didn't want to be left, you know, have books left over. You just like to say you're sold out's what it is, Mike. Admit it. You bring five books. Oh, darn, I'm sold out. That, cause well, that sounds so good. you gotta, you got to create demand, you know. Oh, there you go. So uh, should we talk about our little adventure in, with WGN now, now that we're allowed to talk? Oh, we, yeah, certainly. You let the cat out of the bag on Facebook. We, we were told we could to do it next week. To me, that meant Monday. I don't know. I don't know if you literally thought seven days. I don't know. Well, I know. I, I consider a week seven days myself, but it didn't really matter. You were just excited to do it. At least you put me in your press release. Yeah. Well, you know, I've I've been saying uh, I've been saying that this was John Stevenson all along. Oh, okay. I thought it sounded like this is the famous Michael Clean interview with uh yeah John, my sidekick. <laughs> no, I think that uh, she emailed me and said that um, that it turned out great, that they finished editing it and everything. She uh, actually talked to me, too, and said it came out really, really good. And they were talking about airing it on Halloween night. And I told her that's probably not the best idea because people aren't going to be home on Halloween. So they're going to do it. It'll be on uh, October 28th. That's a Friday at the 9 o'clock news on WGN Chicago. Yeah, I was going to say, they can't change the date. I've been telling everybody. This is the month. This is the month to go do all that stuff. And it's great. I love this life. You know, I'm sleeping at people's houses. Uh, afterwards, I, I feel like I'm almost on a rock tour. Uh, there's so much drinking going on and everything. Dude, do you have groupies? The, uh, no, but uh, I'm staying at this woman's house uh, in Tuscola. who's like a friend of a friend, and she... Uh, she owns a bar there in Tuscola called Proud Mary's, and she was giving me drinks all night, you know, all on the house and everything. Oh, that's and nice. After the, the so you'll have, to, you'll have to get a hold of me after you have one of those nights, and we'll put you on the air. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. It'd be really interesting. My, Michael Clean, live from the bar. <laughs> yeah. Now, tell you, um, the WGN reporter, any more details about the piece, like what kind of footage you used and everything? No, I really don't know much more than you on that. I mean, they they took, what, over four hours of footage for, a, I think it's less than a five-minute piece. Right, so I, I guess we'll just be surprised what they put in there and what they didn't. A lot of that stuff is B-roll footage, you know, that they're just going to probably do voiceovers and stuff. 
Well, it's funny. They had me walking down the path. Remember the Bachelors Grove path? And they had, that guy was walking next yeah. to me one time filming sideways, and he was walking behind me filming up. I'm like, what is all this? <laughs> <laughs> you got to get every angle, you know? I mean, I, that's one thing that I need to do. I need to take, like, a photographer with me because I give my camera to people to take pictures while I'm doing a presentation, but they're not real inventive about it. That's a problem. I, at, at that shoot, I gave my camera to some guy, and he, he took the crappy... Oh, that was you. <laughs> he took the crappiest pictures. <laughs> but if you notice on your camera, I took a bunch of good pictures for you. Oh, yeah. Well, you see that uh, Pam Grimes from WGN took her own pictures, too. I think she sent you those, didn't she? Yeah, she did send a couple of them. All right, that's Michael Clean, everybody. Thank you very much, Mike. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. You're listening to Thresholds into Other Realms. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Maranto and John Stevenson. We hope you enjoyed tonight's show. We'll be back next Friday from 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com or you can go to UFO-Info.com. Sunday nights, 7.30. We'll be here 7.30 p.m. Sunday nights, UFO-Info.com. You don't want to miss it. See you next week.